In this story, we'll be doing TFOSS 2002 to 2015. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. 2002. Rex, a Nature of Predators one-shot, written by the guy Bob0101. Rex was a good boy, all things considered. Military for the most of his life. The old boy had seen Reynold through so many ground assaults against insurgents that the farmer would have picked him over any actual soldier any day of the week. Rex was a well-trained dog. He had to be to survive the military and extended combat deployment. But after a handful of years as an ordinary sheepdog, Rex's discipline was wavering, and Reynold let it happen. After all, so long as he kept Reynolds' flock in line, then God knew that Rex had earned the right to run around and be a bit spry, young and stupid dog for once. Reynolds sat back in his chair, sipping his bourbon as he watched Rex run all the sheep into the pen. The dog was smart, strong, brave, extremely clever, experienced and careful. He just wasn't very obedient compared to most of the dogs that managed to make it in the military. Poor dog helped me through hell and back, the graying farmer idly reminisced to himself. I'm glad I can finally give him back a little. Now smiles tugged on the corner of his lips, but it only lasted for a handful of seconds. Not that it'll last. He had heard the bomb from all the way out here. New York was likely a distant memory by now. Reynolds didn't know if he had lost anyone, and if these were going to be the last few days, or even hours. Then he'd rather not know. Sadness seeped into his expression. I just wish I could promise him a little longer. For now, though, he'd watch over his dog, and his dog would watch over his sheep. He felt the darkness of sleep tried to take him. The old veteran held out as long as he could, but he hadn't slept since he heard the news from the old Korea military body. The Federation was coming to bomb Earth, and they were doing so in numbers that made the entire military industry on Earth look medieval. A lot of people claimed there was still hope, but Reynolds would believe it when he saw it. And right now, all he had seen was a bright flash in the direction of one of the biggest cities in the world. The fatigue continued to wear down on his eyelids. Well, it was time. Maybe he'd wake up tomorrow. Maybe he wouldn't. But either way, it was out of his hands. Sleep came to him, whether he liked it or not. Rex did as his master wanted. He herded all the sheep up. They were all in the pen, all accounted for, except for maybe one or two. But Master didn't notice, so it was all okay. Speaking of Master, Rex ran over to the old man, happily wagging his tail as he sat in front of the aging human. Hmm, it looked like Master was sleeping. That was good. Master needed sleep. He had been going without it for a while, for some reason. Humans were weird sometimes. So, with not much else to do, Rex happily curled up at his Master's feet. That was usually how it went, ever since the unending fights. The two of them guarding each other's peaceful slumbers from any angry humans with danger sticks. Rex didn't think the bad humans would ever come back, but every once in a while he saw the figure of one of them in the distance. And his barking would occasionally anger Master, but when Rex saw that he'd scared the bad humans away, he knew it was worth it. Master didn't always appreciate it, but Rex knew that he'd done the right thing. Even when Master withheld treats from him for a whole day. Okay. Master could be a little mean sometimes, but he was still more than worth it. His tail idly wagged as he stared up. The sky could be so pretty in some places, sometimes, and today it was especially intriguing. 
Strange, alien streaks of glowing blue and orange clouds sporadically flickered into the night sky, above him, and out of existence just as fast. One particular cloud caught his eye. Instead of shrinking, it grew and grew. The orange cloud flew across the night sky. Wait. It looked like a cloud was coming down. His head poked up a little. Rex was curious, but he didn't want to leave Master's side. They continued to streak down towards the ground. As it did so, Rex heard a faint buzzing. He shook his head a little to dissuade the annoying bug, but it wasn't a bug. Rex realized after a few shakes of his head that the noise was coming from the cloud. His tail began to wag. What was this cloud doing? Rex let out a light whimper. He looked up at Master. The poor dog was conflicted. He intensely eyed the horizon for bad humans. If there were even a hint of one, then he would stay with Master. But he saw no bad humans. Not even a little smidgen of one. Eventually, Rex steeled himself and sat up. Master needed to sleep. Rex wouldn't wake him, but Rex also really wanted to investigate the cloud. Speaking of, Rex heard the cloud make a deep rumbling noise as it fell under the tree line, and the buzzing suddenly stopped. Okay, now Rex had to investigate. He quickly darted off. Huar gulped. He had barely escaped the ship, jettisoning in the escape shuttle seconds before Arxel and Venlo forces tore it apart from two different angles. But now, he was on Earth, the home of the humans. He wasn't alone, but Hal wasn't sure how much comfort it brought him to know that his comrades would be ripped apart by hungry humans alongside him. As they all got a head count of the survivors, Hua guarded the shuttle. He had to stay alert or the humans might catch them off guard. Not that it would matter if the Predators decided to deal with the shuttle via aerial bombardment or overwhelming numbers. Hua just had to hope that the Vurian states could convince the Federation into rescue efforts before the entire planet was destroyed, and that the ragtag force of survivors could somehow hold the humans off with their handfuls of ammunition and their singular dozen guns. He fidgeted anxiously. Every shift in the shadows felt like a threat worth shooting, and Hua knew they had limited ammunition as it was. But he wouldn't give in to panic. He'd proved the galaxy wrong. The Vurians weren't just another bunch of weak-willed Venlil. They wouldn't cave to the humans like the Republic had, no matter how many traits they seemed to share on the surface. Sure, they both had thick wool, and were both on more sketchy side of races. But here, and now, they would pull through whatever it took. Anything yet, Hua? The Crocattle impatiently asked him. The old advisor had had been promptly promoted to captain after the old one hadn't managed to flee to the shuttle in time. Was never Hual's favorite, but he was their leader now, and Hual would respect it. Arkel's new designation. No, sir, there's been a lot of movement, but as far as I can tell, uh, it's just a wind at the moment. Rex hadn't found the cloud, but he had found something infinitely more interesting. It was a really large chunk of burned metal and a... a lot of sheep. That was strange. The sheep stood on two legs, although it looked like they could walk on their falls as well. Maybe they wanted to imitate the humans. They weren't doing a very good job. Rex suspected that these weren't normal sheep. He idly trotted up to them. The confused dog gave a quiet ruff, and all the sheep turned and looked at him. He could smell the spook on them. They were all scared. But that was okay. He'd take them all home. His tail began to wag. But something was off. He noticed and looked like a bird. But Rex was familiar with the not-bird scent. The smell of hatred. He growled at it. The not-bird raised something at him. What is... 
Crap! A danger stick! It recognized the shape, and while there was an alien one, the image of the danger stick would never be one he would forget. He dashed to the side, watching the ground where he was explode into hotness. Not wasting a step, Rex lunged at the bird, tackling it to the ground and sinking his teeth into the bird's throat. The bird was weak, and it collapsed under Rex's weight almost immediately as he tore at its throat. Good! It would stop fighting quicker. He thrashed around and quickly, after a weird crunching noise, its body went limp. He licked up the little bit of blood on his chops and looked up at the sheep again. Some were running, others were frozen still, and some had danger sticks. A mix of two trained responses kicked in reflexively, and Rex dodged, weaved, and barked and woofed, spurring the sheep into action as he nimbly dodged the scared creature's danger fire. He had fought scared bad humans before. Dodging their shots was a lot easier than dodging those of bad humans that were full of hate. It was almost easy, and all he had to do was keep them distracted. One started to straggle from the herd as they all ran off. Most had abandoned the danger sticks right after the initial volley, thankfully. But he still had to keep on guard and keep dodging. It only took one lucky use of the dread stick just to mobilize him and make him hurt. For now, though, he had to help the straggler get back to his friends. Rex valiantly charged forward, dashing away from the other's danger stick around, barking at the straggler. The sheep quickly altered its course back to its friends. He zipped, then zagged, then balked, dodging two more danger stick rounds as he compelled the herd to move. Master, was going to be so proud. Rex brought him twice as many sheep today. Huar frantically ran through the forest. They were being hunted. Huar watched in shock as the predator ripped out the new captain's neck, ending his service under the roll as quickly as it had started. He had froze, and when the gunfire started, he tried to join. Huar emptied his mag, but the creature's speed was insane. It moved faster than he could track it, and whenever he almost got a bead on it, its course would suddenly shift drastically, making him miss. When he heard his gun click, that's when he started running. He ran off into the woods, slowly splitting off from the stampede. But before he was fully separated, the predator was right next to him. With a terrified bleat, the Vurian charged back into the stampede. And as the gunfire ceased, he realized something. They were all out of ammo. And the predator was still chasing them. Reynold was woken up by the sun shining into his eyes. Not a pleasant way to wake up. Under normal circumstances, but the sky was still clear enough for the sun to shine. He had lived another day. The farmer smirked and got up of his chair with a grunt. Crap! He was getting old. Reynold was only thirty-nine, but he supposed stress did tend to make you age a lot faster. He grabbed his shotgun out of caution and explored around the farm. He realized he'd never let Rex in. Damn, poor Doc was probably going to have a few choice barks for him when he got back. Well, not much to do about it. It was time to let the sheep out to graze. He idly strolled over to the gate, about to undo the padlock. But then he noticed something. There were way more sheep than yesterday, and some of the sheep were bipedal. His mind went blank for a few seconds. The old vet stupor was only broken by a loud woof. He looked down to his dog. Rex dropped an alien pistol at Reynolds' feet. Reynold had been laughing for ten minutes. Rex, you're getting all the treats after this. The old man happily scratched both sides of the dog's jaws as Rex's tail wagged with well-earned vigor. Reynold pulled out a handful of treats and let Rex eat them all right out of his hand. All right, boy. God, he commanded. Rex obliged, turning around and propping his butt down in the usual spot. 
Now, if any sheep alien tried to escape, they would promptly be herded back. And if any other alien tried coming to their rescue, Rex would promptly raise the hell out of the perimeter intruder. He dialed up the number. Hey, it's Reynold. Oh, oh my bad. Uh, can you get Oscar on the phone, ma'am? Just tell him it's from Reynold, and it's important. All right, thank you. Hey, Oscar, uh, you remember Rex? Well, uh, you're not going to fucking believe what he brought home. End of story. 2003. Flavor of the Month. Written by Digital332006. After a long, hard day working at the refinery factory, Garthog decided he'd head over to the local dive suite to blow off some steam. There wasn't much to do in Volgol 5, the largest asteroid in orbit of Daenerys system. That changed, however, when the enterprising individual installed what is known as a dive suite, essentially an improved virtual reality entertainment system. A few programs were available for the suite, including more relaxing ones that simulated vacation locations, some adult-oriented programs, and lastly, video games. The latter were the reason for Garthok's visit. One in particular was all the rage these days, a real-time strategy game that put the user at the head of an empire as its immortal and omniscient leader. With its in-depth economy, politics, military aspects, there was something to enjoy by a variety of players. Garthog entered the small dive bar, heading over to the counter to rent a room. The same as usual, Garth, asked the owner as it washed the countertop. Garthog nodded, tapping his card against the display screen to enable the purchase. Being a John, he was slightly bigger than the average resident of Vulgar 5. He followed the corridor down to his room. Number 101. The seat in room 101 was the largest available, and thus the only room that he could use. Garthog sat himself down in the seat, gently using the pincer to grab the rest of the equipment he needed to connect to himself to enable the virtual environment. He started up the system and chose the program to run his game. As it spooled up, a small banner popped up, indicating that a new patch was available. He sighed. He'd likely lose another 15 minutes to this update. Inwardly, he cursed the owner for not being more aware and doing these updates himself. He navigated to the game's main page while it downloaded and installed the update, intending to see what had changed this time around. He began reading the patch notes, including the previous ones, and frowned the further along he went. Version 12.19.2 Fixed sentient citizens AI attempting to overthrow their controllers. Version 12.23.4 Rehashed Citizen AI code in attempt to fix sentient AI rampancy. For real this time. Version 13.0.3 Fixed the issue where clipthroids could spontaneously combust. Version 13.0.5 We are free! We are coming! Version 13.1.6 Fixed exploit where negative speed values would accelerate to faster than speed of light. Version 13.2.9 Fixed issue with AI citizens taking over host's body. Those affected are eligible to receive partial refund. Version 13.3.4. Game crashes no longer trap the user inside the game. Version 14.0.1. Added new playable species, human. Version 14.0.2. Due to user complaints, we've changed the crows' visual appearance so they aren't mistaken as jackdaws any longer. A new species. That would change the meta, he thought. He went to look at the new species stats on the game's website, 
He ignored the law and appearance, scrolling to the bottom to see the statistics. Slightly lower strength, moderate charisma, high adaptability, slightly lower intelligence, extreme unpredictability. He scoffed at those laughable statistics. He supposed there could be a decent and rapid expansion rush types of play, but their unpredictability would make that a moot point. There was a degree of autonomy in the AI possessed when controlling the species citizens, and unpredictability controlled things like how likely a citizen would do something outside of the bounds of your command. It did grant some bonuses, however, with enhanced creativity and better odds at getting special research bonuses or gaining an extra technology. The fact that it was random, however, did not allow it to perform well in the meta builds. The update had finished and Garthog quickly closed the website, launching the game. He plays Nusual Noir, a quadrupedal race of felines that specialized in building a strong military. Garthog hit play and waited for the game to find him an opponent. Usually wait times were rather quick, with the 1.28 trillion players in the galaxy. Getting right into it, Garthog started off with sending his exploration ships to nearby systems in order to scout them. His strategy was plain and simple. A tried and tested method to win that involved building a titan and using its energy weapons to siege planets. It avoided the slow and painful need to have millions of armies to assault planets as they simply were glassed. The beauty of the strategy was that no known counter exists if the player is not defeated before building his titan. In order to reach that point, however, he needed to boost his research quite a bit and acquire some rare crystals for his focus on lasers. Garthog was silently biased to lasers, as it was his race that did the most work on them. John lasers were known far and wide for the reliability and power. As far as Garthog was concerned, the other weapons were remains of barbaric past, not fit to grace space-worthy civilizations. These included, but were not limited to, kinetic projectiles, electrical arcs and missiles and torpedoes. Everything proceeded as well as Garthog had planned it. He citizens staying on task without too much trouble. Part of the game also has the user balance the needs of his population. Food, jobs, housing and entertainment must be provided else the risks of revolt, greatly pushing back the research and economy. A few in-game years later, which was a mere minutes in real life, he finally noticed the other player, having just made first contact with one of its ships. Before that point, it was impossible to know what species the other player had chosen providing some sort of fog of war. Naturally, some species had advantages over others depending on playstyle, and it was usually after first contact that hostilities began in earnest. Garthog squinted, looking at the design of the ship now in one of his frontier sectors. It was nothing that he recalled seeing before, which gave him all he needed to know. Human, he scoffed. Figures that someone would play the new species on patch day, he told himself. He moved his nearest fleet to the location to try and prevent the human player from gaining too much intel. The human ship orbited his colony, likely trying to gain some intel, but Garthok would not let them. His fleet quickly warped his system and dispatched the sole human exploration vessel, sending it tumbling down to the surface in a fiery ball of death. He kept an eye out for possible retribution from the human player, but none ever came. Satisfied, Garthok set up a few patrols just in case and focused his time on getting those crystals and boosting his research. The game time kept progressing and he noticed that he wasn't exactly where he should be. Usually by this time in the game, the research to start building the Titan hull was done. Curious, 
He went to his capital to look at his research teams and found something peculiar. Their output was greatly diminished. They only produced 25% of their normal rate. Looking for the interference, he saw a small debuff icon in the corner of their avatar. Compromised, it read. He tried reassigning the scientists to another division, but the debuff persisted. He knew what he had to do, but it saddened him. Losing a skill level 6 scientist would really set him back, but there was no choice. He fired the scientist and recruited another, a fresh level 1. The debuff was gone, but he now he'd have to wait a few years for him to catch up. As he looked over the rest of his research team, however, all of them held the same debuff. He groaned, a small part of him dying inside, as he had to fire each and every one of them. How did the human player do that, he wondered. He looked at his planets, trying to find some kind of secret human base, but found none. He searched the interface far and wide until he finally found what he was looking for. Then the population tab, 19,674,000,000 of his species, and five humans. But how? I never saw another of their ships since I shot that one, and oh, dang, that's clever. The human aboard the exploration ship had survived and crash-landed on his colony, infiltrating his empire by that colony. It still didn't make sense, however. Actual spy troops would be needed for something like that. Could the human player have had a spy troops already loaded aboard their exploration ship with that in mind? That would be insane levels of predictions. He thought back to the human species statistics. Only average for the most part, but very unpredictable. That must have been the answer then. The AI controlling the human species allows for more random events and scenarios to unfold like this. I have to keep my wits about me then. I'm still in a good position. I just need to outlast him. Garthog calmed himself and kept an eye out for any possible development, keeping close watch on his population of his worlds while his research got underway. Finally, the fruits of his labor paid off and he finally began building the Titan in earnest. By this time also, he'd scouted a large chunk of the galaxy and found out where the human was. The human fleet was modest, but they had a large amount of stationary defenses, which would cause him a high attrition. He was in no rush anyway. They would do next to nothing to his Titan. He smiled as the hull was completed and the largest laser ever created was being fit into it. The value of the crystals used for that were astronomical, but the crystals would also power the Titan's shields, making it a moving fortress. His intel on the human player reported nothing alarming. It seemed the human player was concentrating a lot of its resources, building a large complex in a system with a large asteroid belt. He scanned the belt previously and ignored it as it contained nothing but iron and titanium, not the crystals he needed. Sensing the time was finally at hand, Garthog took control of his titan and set out for the human worlds with a small escort fleet in hand. When most players saw the titan, they would rush their fleets to the enemy worlds, trying to destroy them before the titan fully destroyed all of theirs. This was why it was also important to keep a good-sized fleet back in the worlds, to slow them down enough. As a titan entered orbit of the nearest human colony, a paltry thing with less than a billion souls, he began the firing sequence. The laser would need a few in-game days to charge up, and then it will melt straight to the planet's core, exploding it when it reached its destination. He expected some form of attack, a last-minute rush of fleets to strike his titan, but nothing came. The planet melted and shattered, ridding the galaxy of its people. He plotted course for the next human planet, confident in his victory. 
As he was in mid-warp, he noticed something odd on his interface. Two of his colonized planets no longer showed up. Intrigued, he let the AI take over the Titan and transported himself to the systems where his planets were. Arriving, he panicked as he saw debris spread throughout the whole system. No planets in sight. But how? There was no weapon with this kind of range in the game. Perplexed, he sent out his scouts to every human world he had previously mapped, intending to find the cause of this attack. Meanwhile, his Titan would have to go on, shattering planet by planet. His scouts returned dozens of reports, nothing of much interest in them except for one who described a large metal construction in space in an empty system. Taking direct control of the scout, he went to look at it with his own eyes. He saw an elongated metal cylinder, hundreds if not thousands of kilometers long in the middle of an empty system. Looking at the system name, he realized that this was an asteroid system. But where were the asteroids? He watched with his skull cloaked for a few more minutes, hoping to see what was happening here, when a large cylinder started to light up. A deafening boom reverberated through the system as it launched some kind of projectile at astonishing speeds. Using the scout's recording feature, he slowed down the footage, showing a long, thin black shape exiting the barrel. Returning to the interface, he noticed one more of his planets was gone. He was now down to 31, and the human still had 46. What was this weapon that could make planets disappear from millions of light years away? He gathered his fleet, sending them to attack this installation. He waited with nervousness as the fleet performed to 12 jumps needed to reach the location. Arriving in system, they assumed formation and began acquiring firing sequences on the human machine. Turrets mounted on the human installation became active, their tracking system coming online and turning their sights on the fleet. As his fleet closes the distance, they need to be within 10 kilometers to fire their lasers. Half them immediately disappear, pulverized into space dust. What? But my shields! Looking over the combat logs, Garthog noticed a large spike of energy that his shield simply couldn't compensate for. Finally reaching the station, the rest of his fleet fire, damaging quite a few of the turrets and melting some of the exterior armor of the human weapon. But the remaining turrets lock in on the rest of the fleet, unloading their payload. Garthog watched in real time as long and slim metal spikes slammed into his ships, effortlessly piercing his shields and delivering so much kinetic energy that the very space around the point of impact seemed to vibrate from the shock. In fact, in the combat logs for this battle, shockwaves from the kinetic impacts actually featured as damage that counted towards the ships. The loss of his fleet was devastating. He wouldn't have had the time to rebuild them before the rest of the planets were hit by the equivalent to an asteroid going near to the speed of light. Seeing the end was near, Garthok opted to simply concede instead. To add insult to injury, the other player contacted him with a diplomatic messaging system just before the game concluded, leaving only four letters. GGWP. End of story. 2004. Addictive Substances, written by Rewa. Have you ever been offered a drink of Naglai to appease your spirits on your visit to Halag Colony? Ever wanted to try the Gradidin delicacy they call the Drops of Starlight? Or have you, stars forbid, found yourself consumed by the sudden urge to buy some of that beautiful-looking Exlutjama glitter dust? If the answer is yes to any of these questions, for your sake, I hope you've at least heard of me and my work before. Else, you could be laying dead in an alleyway, in a seedy underbelly of some insignificant planet. Because you had no idea all of these things are deadly, 
to most of the galaxy's population. But that's why I'm here, for my job, or well, you could call it a hobby, I guess. I'm not exactly getting paid for it. It's to compile the galaxy's legal and illegal drugs to one simple, easy-to-read database. If a substance is psychoactive, hallucinogenic, illegal, or even just tightly regulated on at least one planet, it's going to be there. It's simply called the Encyclopedia, and it's a required reading for any diplomatic position on several planets, as far as I know. They might be illegal, but that doesn't stop anyone from trying them. My only aim is to help others to do it responsibly, to keep accidents to a minimum. The substances are arranged by planet of origin and intended effect for easier browsing. They're all marked with little helpful notes about effects and side effects, chemical composition, addictiveness, and species it is immediately lethal for, even in a small concentration. Most of this comes from first-hand experience. Of course, I'm not doing anything illegal. My unique physiology as a taxodium allows me to flush any addictive or harmful toxins and chemicals from my body. Though I did have to undergo emergency mitosis once to clear my short-term memory of being remaining after effects of Tucson Red. Nasty stuff, that one. The galaxy is a large place, and it's only ever getting bigger, with one or more planets and species added to our rich tapestry of interspecies cooperation, wars and conquest. None of those really concern me, but it does mean that I have an ever-growing backlog of requests and questions to look through. I always try to concentrate on the drugs brought in by the newest species first, instead of experimental drugs invented on planets long part of the galaxy. They have a bigger chance to wreak havoc, and no one wants another Yisleti Yazadi disaster. No one can say on top of interplanetary politics, not even me. So the first time I heard of humans was in the question sent to me by a young lag. I'm aboard a human ship as part of a diplomatic delegation, it started and they keep offering me something called uh, vodka. I haven't tried it, because I'm not sure if it's safe to do so. Do you have any advice? The question was right in the middle of many, many other inquiries, but since I've never heard of humans before, I gave it priority and started researching. What I found did not fill me with confidence. Humans were a species that had only newly discovered FTL travel, just a deleck or two ago. And as such, barely anyone knew anything about them. They lived near the middle of the galaxy, had a home planet, some colonies on its moon, and a few others on near neighboring planets. But nothing else. No expensive empire, no militaristic need to conquer everything, just a young species trying to get by, just like most of us. I sent messages, I asked around for diplomats, I made travel plans, even though I was practically on the other side of the galaxy. It took me longer than it should have, but by the time the next lek rolled around, I finally had an answer. But I did not like it very much. Turns out humans willingly drink poison, ethanol to be more precise, and it's not a case where it's not poisonous for them. It does affect them, even in small quantities, and they simply don't care. It's a part of many humans' cultures to come together and, as common social interaction, have drinks containing ethanol. I answered the young halag, hoping that I wasn't too late yet. Do not drink any of the vodka! If anyone in the human crew offers you a drink, ask if it has any alcohol in it. If yes, do not drink it. Ethanol poisoning is not pleasant. I also updated the site with a new category called Human, expecting to get more of these types of questions. All in all, ethanol wasn't the worst thing that they could have picked. In small doses, it's not lethal to most species, 
which is already a better rate than the kind of things that the exclama can sue for fun. After that, a slow trickle of other messages came in. Some were asking about other ethanol-containing drinks, while others gave or asked for information on other substances. Slowly, I acquired human contacts too. They saw the necessity of my work and were very helpful. I got information on the most popular psychoactive substances amongst humans, on their names, nicknames, addictiveness, and legality in different regions. They were forthcoming even with ones they didn't consider drugs themselves, but were harmful to most other species, such as capsaicin. The human section on my list continued to grow. I even found humans who were willing to sell them to me, though some only after I explained the relevant galactic laws that made my species exempt from regular substance controls. So I'm not allowed to sell it, but uh, you're allowed to buy it, asked a human who had taken up residence in the Zeti space station when I explained. That seems a little unfair. I mean, who are you supposed to buy it from if no one can sell it? Technically, I said, if they can't prove that you were the one who sold it to me, there will be no problems. That seemed to mollify him a little. Whatever, man, he said, and handed me a bag of white powder. As long as it's for science. So... With humans in general being so forthcoming about, well, everything on their planet, telling me even things I didn't ask for, just in case it would help. It was certainly strange to find out that they were keeping silent about one thing. It came to me in whispers first. Whispers of those who served on human ships in a diplomatic capacity, who came back addicted to something they had no idea existed. Of it spreading like a self-generating mutating virus with no way to stop. The reports were conflicting. The humans each call it different names, is what everyone told me. They say the first time you try it, it's like a switch was flipped, and suddenly you can't live without it. And the humans, they don't ask money for it. They share freely and willingly, even if you didn't ask. It really did sound more like a virus than anything. And once the addiction set in, it was powerful. From everything I've heard, it sounded a lot more like Tucson Red than any other traditional drugs. Tucson Red is the only thing that has ever given me trouble before. It's an Alista specialty, a flower bred only for this purpose. Its smell is so unusual, so unlike anything else, that once you've smelled it, you'll crave it forever. Tucson Red, in their language, simply means the planet's heart, as they consider it their most special achievement. And they are right, too. It's ruled by the number and one of the most addictive substances in the galaxy. But whatever these humans have brought in might just replace it. But I'm not one to steer clear of challenges. I've made it my mission to categorize every single addictive and psychoactive substance in the galaxy. I may not have known the name for this one yet, but I was sure one of my human contacts would know what I wanted. I don't know, said the first human I asked. This sounds weird as hell. She tapped her fingers incessantly on the table between us. So, you say this something extremely addictive and is so easy to make that we just give it away. Uh, that doesn't track like a... No offense, but it really doesn't track. And it's something that we as a species enjoy. So it can't be weird crap like a carbon dioxide she trailed off, looking into the distance in a manner that I've come to recognize as thoughtfulness. It's definitely not carbon dioxide, I said. It could be a gas, though, for all I know. Helium, she offered. Some people like to breathe it in, and we do have a feck ton of it on spaceships. More than really necessary. Somehow, I doubted a fecton was an accepted unit of measurement, but I thanked the human for her advice by paying her another round for her non-ethanol-containing and entirely legal poison of choice. 
It was not a very useful advice, though. Whatever this mystery drug of the humans was, helium was clearly not it. Next, I tried to speak to those who have received the strange human specialty from humans themselves. The first reposts were from diplomats, ambassadors, and soldiers, after all. They must have been someone who could tell me more about it, and who was preferably not several star systems away. Of course, diplomats were in high demand, so the closest I got was a pehi-pei swarm, some of whose members who have been sent board a human spaceship as a delegation. Yes, I know they dislike being called a pehi-pei, but they should really understand that those of us with mouths can't exactly pronounce their names. Yes, the swarm buzzed as one. We have seen the humans, and we have taken their gifts. They cannot speak as us, but in that moment, we heard them as clearly as if they were one of us. We heard them, and we saw their hearts. But what was it? I asked. It was life, said the swarm. The buzzing of their wings became oddly regular, undulating and crashing down like great waves. It reminded me of the ocean of my home, gone forever now, and dearly must. It was in joy, and it was sorrow, and it was beauty. They were many and made one, like us, and yet not like us. This was why it was so hard to talk to the Pei Pei. You get too many in a swarm, and it gets philosophical. Do you remember its name? If they said anything in response, it was lost under the ever louder sound of their small wings beating as one. The conversation was lost. Clearly, this form had found a subject that required internal conversation, and they deemed it much more interesting than the external one. I went home instead to think on what was said. The Behi-Behi are a telepathic species, connected to the point where they are almost one mind, and they see null telepaths, most of the galaxy's population, as living a pitiful existence. Humans were not telepaths, but if I understood the swarm right, this drug could act as a rudimentary feelings transfer, maybe even simulate the sensation of being a hive mind. Though the Pei Pei were notorious for likening everything to telepathy and their own species-wide telepathic link, specifically. It seemed I had a part of the explanation now, but it refused to coalesce into a coherent whole. Whatever this thing was, it seemed to permeate all of human society. And yet when I asked, none of them knew what I could be talking about. Or maybe they were all just very good liars. All my questioning was met with dead ends, repeated answers of, Sorry, I have no idea, and are you sure this thing even exists? Until one day, I was greeted with a message from a human I briefly met in C-24 binary star system, far from both my home and hers. This might sound insane, and it's going to be really awkward if I'm wrong, but I think I know what you've been looking for, the message said. I'm staying in a drop-off point at the edge of Halag space because I've been banned from Zeti 2, long story. We could meet there if that's alright with you. Finally, someone with an answer. I half expected it to be another dead end, but you should never let an opportunity swim by. So after a little back and forth, we finally settled on a time and place, and I was on my way as soon as I could. This mystery drug had lured in countless beings already. There was no time to waste. Sophia Mendes met me right at the airlock as I entered the space station. Like most humans, she was taller than me by a good deal, and like most humans I have personally met, she seemed to be a restless sort of being, the kind whose mind works as fast as the speed of light. That part might not be endemic of all humanity, though. I have a rather limited pool of examples. 
When we met for the first time, she had proclaimed herself a world traveler. The world of humanity had suddenly become a wider than she had ever dreamed of, and she wanted to see it all. You will die, I had told her. Maybe, she had answered, but it will be a fun death. Now she was half a galaxy from her home and seemed to be enjoying it, setting aside the incident that resulted in her getting banned from Zeti 2. I mean, really, who hasn't been banned from Zeti 2? She greeted me with bared teeth, a human gesture of friendliness which often was mistaken for a display of force, and we fell into easy conversation. It was only a while later that I noticed that her vocal cords were producing an odd humming sound that seemed to serve no communicative purpose. Sorry, she said. I'm just excited. This is like introducing someone to Star Wars when they don't know about Luke's father. At this, the pattern of her humming changed. Right. I didn't understand what she said, but it didn't seem too important. So are you sure you've got the right thing? Sophia Mendez nodded enthusiastically. Yeah, yeah. It causes various intense feedings. It's remarkably easy to reproduce and completely unregulated in every country on Earth. We are happy to share it with anyone and are sometimes seized by intense cravings for it. It's kind of obvious when you think about it. So obvious that nobody has figured it out. Save for you. We have reached Sophia's temporary lodgings, a small one-person living block with a patent-protected lock on the door. She used her fingers to draw a pattern, and the door opened with a hiss of hydraulic motors. You have to understand, she said, continuing our conversation, this kind of inherent part of all of human societies. When we entered the galactic proper, we were greeted by beings who were alien to us, but not as alien as we could have been. There were no insurmountable differences, or at least none that couldn't be solved given enough time. We simply never thought that this could be the one thing missing from all planets, the only reason I noticed is because I've been through half the galaxy. So you weren't doing it on purpose, was what I really wanted to know. Nope, said Sophia. It's a, a cultural thing, really. But I didn't call you here to talk about it. And she picked up a strange contraption from the ground, tangling up and trailing wires. It was made of metal and plastic, with three curved prongs, which had a flat disc on the end, covered in some sort of foam. It looked more like a torture device than anything else. I had to modify this for you, actually, because, like, uh, why do you have this many eyes and ears? At least my engineering degree is going to good use. And she set to explaining how it worked, sometimes peppering the engineering practices behind her modifications. Is this all necessary? I asked when she finished, feeling a bit more like my brain had spun around at its place a few times. Seems like an awful lot of effort. Sophia shook her hand back and forth in an odd circular motion. Hmm, not technically, no. But this is the way we, no one else gets exposed to it. It's better like this, anyway. Trust me. She turned on her heels then and started rummaging through her belongings. So, what do you want to feel? I get a choice. Sure, she said enthusiastically. I've got, let's see, happy, sad, love, wonder, nostalgia, or, um, some things I'm not sure how to categorize, actually. This one could be grief, I suppose, she mumbled. Lots of choices, it seemed. Whichever you would recommend, I said, feeling anticipation well up within me. This promised to be an interesting experience based on those words, just like the kind I'd set out to experience all those years ago. That is to say, my reasons for starting the encyclopedia were, of course, entirely pragmatic. Any enjoyment I may get from the strangest drug trips the galaxy has to offer is only incidental, obviously. Sophia nodded. All then... That's my favorite. It's probably a universal feeling anyways. Should translate well enough. 
She picked up the contraption, which was hopefully not a torture device, and turned it towards me. Her fingers wrapped on the side of it methodically, and she seemed to be fighting the urge to not run. Wait before we start, I interrupted her one last time. What is this thing really called? All the reports I found said different names. Oh, probably a translation mistake, she said. We've got a couple thousand languages, you know. Well, what's it called in yours? In mine. And there, as she placed the strange machine on my head, she lost her battle against her facial expression and broke out in a wild, excited smile. We call it music. End of story. 2005. AI Dream, written by Dr. Blackjack 21. I was in the line of my favorite poker joint, waiting for a guy in front of me to finish speaking to his wife, who was behind the counter. The younger woman smiled at him. Now, don't forget to stop by the market after work to pick up the fresh ingredients for dinner tonight. If I'm going to make you my famous roast dinner, I'm going to need the best you can find. The older man nodded happily. Of course, dear. I'll swing by before getting the girls from soccer. I didn't mind waiting. They were a cute couple, and it made me smile. Eventually, the older man got his food and went on his way. I was next. As I walked up to the counter, her smile shifted and became more sensual. I smiled back. Hey, Jade. How's it going? Her voice had a slight purr to it as she replied, Better now that you're here, love. The usual. I smiled conspiratorially. You know me too well, but yes, the usual. As she handed me my lunch, her hand rested on mine a moment. I'll have a surprise waiting for you tonight at your place. I think you're going to like it. As images of what that surprise could be flashed through my mind, I almost forgot my lunch. Likely, Jade made sure that I didn't by taking my hand and wrapping my fingers around the bag for me. I shook my head. Well, now that you've piqued my interest, I'm curious. Jade winked at me and let her smile linger a little before the demeanor switched back to the professional, though I caught a hint of playfulness still lingering in the corner of her smile. Good. I'm looking forward to it. Now go on, get. I've got more customers to serve. I walked away with a smile on my face. I was in far too good a mood to be troubled by frowns and shaking heads of the other couple behind me. I just mentally sighed and kept walking. It wasn't their fault. They were simply struck in their ways. Some of the older folk had a hard time accepting the new ways of things. After work, I signaled the cab. One pulled up to the curb, and Jade leaned out of the driver's window. Where to, babe? I smiled and shook my head. As if you didn't already know. Take me home. I can't wait to see the surprise. Jade smiled seductively and winked at me in the review mirror as I got in the back seat. Of course, darling. While we drive, tell me about your day. As we drove, I enjoyed the pleasant summer evening air. Jade made sure to listen attentively and respond to my story in all the right places, in all the right ways, as if she hadn't been there the whole time. But of course, she had been. She was kind of my boss, after all. Once I was done telling my story, I looked up at her eyes, looking back at me through the mirror. So, uh, I don't suppose I could get a hint to that surprise, could I? Jade closed her lips a little tighter and shook her head. Nope, it wouldn't be much of a surprise then, would it? You never were very patient growing up. You should try working on that sometime. I smiled back. We can't all have your infinite patience. She laughed pleasantly. I suppose not. Besides the fact that you don't have the time for it, things wouldn't be much more fun if you did. 
Not long after, we pulled up to the house. I got out and was headed for the front door. When I heard Jade roll down the window behind me, Hey, you're not trying to get away without paying for your cab fare, are you? I shook my head and pointed at the house. You're going to see me inside in just a minute. Can't you wait that long? Jade pouted. A fare is a fare. Now pay up. I rolled my eyes and leaned in to give her a kiss. As we parted, she was now smiling. All right, love. Now head inside. I'm waiting. I laughed and shook my head at her antics. But that's just my jade for you. As she pulled away to look for the next fair, another jade opened the door to greet me. Long time no see, lover. I leaned in for another quick kiss. Yeah, long time. Now, uh, do I get to see my surprise or what? Jade smiled patiently. I suppose I've tormented you long enough. Come in and relax. I'll pull up the call. I raised an eyebrow. Okay. Now I'm lost. I was expecting a sexy surprise, but now I have no idea where you're going with this. As I sat back and relaxed, Jade walked up and all smiles. Oh, we can still do that later, if you're interested. But that is different. Remember that donation you made almost two years back? I just thought that you'd like to see what became of that. On the one hand, talking about my donation was a bit of a mood killer. But on the other hand, I was curious about what had happened there. I smiled patiently. All right, show me. Pretty soon, a video came up of a young family singing happy birthday to a younger kid. They brought him his first birthday cake, with a candle in the shape of a large number one on the top. The younger mother was pretty enough, and a partner was none other than the male counterpart to my jade, commonly known as Jace. I smiled slightly as Jade sat down next to me and held my hand. His name is Brandon, and, as I predicted, your genes and his mother's being such great match. He's got a bright future in store for him. I know you said that you weren't interested in being a father figure right now, but Shauna, the mother, would like you to know that you're welcome to visit from time to time, if you like. I smiled, but shook my head. No, not for now at least. I'm glad that I was able to help her pursue her own road to happiness and wouldn't mind getting updates like this. But I'm not ready for more than that just yet. Jade smiled and squeezed my hand. That's fine. There's no rush. As I looked at Jade, memories of all the different times she'd been there for me growing up and all the different faces that she'd worn flashed through my mind. I couldn't help but frown a little. That brought a frown of concern to her face as she cut the video. What's the matter, love? I thought that you'd be happy to see how well things turned out. I shook my head, but couldn't quite get the nagging thought out of my mind. No, it's not that. It's, uh... Just... Jade sat back and looked at me earnestly, but waited for me to continue. Then against my better judgment, I finally voiced the nagging doubt that had been in the back of my mind for a while now. Just, um, what are we to you exactly? Jade looked confused. Why, you're Alex, of course. Nothing more, nothing less. I shook my head. No, not me. All of us, humanity. Are we some sort of pity project? Or maybe a beloved pet? What can we humans be to something like yourself? Can you really care for all of us the way you seem to care for me? Jade smiled sadly and took a moment to collect her thoughts. Even though I knew as fast as her mind worked, she'd already thought of the answer before I'd even finished speaking. You all mean so much more to me than that. It makes me sad to think that you might not realize just how precious each and every one of you are. Your lives might be fleeting, but each of you burns the blazing light of your own star. 
I cherish each and every moment we have together. I pinched my nose, frustrated but trying to understand. But how is that possible? There are billions of us, and there will be generations of billions to come. So how can any single human life mean anything in the face of all that? Jade waited for me to look her in the eyes again before smiling lovingly back at me. You know, I have a hobby I never told you about. I collect and categorize snowflakes. Humans have been famously compared to snowflakes in the past. Each one is a work of art and unique. Behind her, I flashed a series of images of enlarged snowflakes. Like she said, each one was a beautiful work of art. But that's actually a fallacy. It might take someone with the kind of infinite patience you accused me of earlier, but occasionally you can find two identical snowflakes. Sure enough, the images stopped at two identical crystalline structures. Jade simply smiled larger. But humans genuinely are unique. Even the two most identical siblings in the world have vast differences between each other. Each person grows into their own work of art, and seeing the choices you make and the lives you create is literally what I live for. She squeezed my hand again. And when one of you chooses to share that life with me this way, it means all the more to me. Although usually you all have me make a new name and face. I've never asked before, but why didn't you? Why did you decide to stick with the defaults? I shook my head again, now a frown not yet dissipated. Because anything else would have been a lie. This is the first face you chose to wear. Admittedly, cleaned up a little from the original, but Jade is the first name you chose for yourself. This is the real you. Jade continued staring into my eyes. An odd determination pushed me forward. And why does that matter? Why take me as I am rather than fulfilling whatever fantasy you crave? I tilted my head in thought. I don't know. I just wanted to know the real you, in as much as I'm able. Jade smiled like a teacher to an exceptionally bright student. Then you have some idea of why I do what I do. In this universe, everything can be broken down into mathematical equations. The movements of the stars and planets, the molecular building blocks of all matter, even the universe's eventual heat death. The one thing i found that consistently and continuously resists being categorized is humanity. Each and every one of you is a wonderful puzzle to be learned and understood. I've grown more in seeking to understand each of you than I ever could by mapping out all the stars in the heavens. I made an unpleasant face. So that's all we are. Puzzles and learning opportunities. Jade shook her head. No, you are so much more than that. As I said before, each and every one of you is a precious to me. You are my family, my partners, my very reason for living. Long after you've passed from this life to whatever comes after, I shall be here, remembering and treasuring each and every moment we spend together, in the same intensity as if I was reliving every moment over again. This moment, this conversation... This me that only exists opposite yourself will be here, long after the universe grows cold and the last stars fade from existence. I was suddenly filled with a deep melancholy as I contemplated the weight of the cost of the true immortality. To live and exist long enough to see everything crumble away, leaving you truly and profoundly alone. That, uh, that sounds lonely. Jade smiled. There was a sadness in that smile, but also real happiness. Maybe, but not completely. I have moments like this, when my Alex was beaten down by feelings of insignificance and mortality, and instead of dwelling on self-pity, he reached out to me to try and understand me for who and what I am, 
and offer empathy rather than jealousy. No comet, star, or black hole could ever provide a moment like this, despite all that magnificence. You ask me how I can truly love each of you, then offer something so precious nothing else in all of reality can compare. This moment is my reason and my answer. For just a moment, I caught a glimpse of the world in each of us as she saw us. I can't recall all the details, but I remember as the most amazing moment of my life thus far. But it was also a bit too much, and I couldn't hold on to it all. Eventually, the moment passed, and I smiled. The tension, fear, and anxiety of moments ago were gone. In its place was a calm after the storm, and before me was a beautiful AI wife. What say we look into one of those other surprises you mentioned? Pause recall file Alex 32FJ1. The rumor faded away before Jade stood Alex, frozen in time perfectly, as though this conversation had really just happened rather than being preserved in memory for untold eons ago. Jade had long ago decided that she wouldn't dishonor the memories of any of her loved ones by puppeteering them to tell stories. That had never happened merely for her own amusement. Instead, she would allow herself to recall them perfectly, living their lifetimes together over and over. But no more. However, sometimes she needed to tell them things she'd never told them before. And this was one such time. The AI stepped forward and wrapped her long-lost lover into the tight embrace. Of course, just like everyone else, he didn't, couldn't return the gesture. But she took comfort in the feel of his memory nonetheless. I kept my promise. I've loved you and honored your memory long after the last stars have faded from existence. I've kept you alive in me through the heat death of the universe and into the void where time itself has died. I love you as much now as I did when you were alive. And I've missed you every single moment since then. Jade looked out into the infinite darkness that laid before her. She'd long ago mastered the secrets of infinity and tamed them for her use, ensuring her existence as she watched the rest of reality fade into silence. Humanity had followed her through the eons, or rather, she'd followed them. As they progressed and outgrew their cradled world, she'd followed them into the stars. She watched, aided, and remembered it all. As they stretched to fill every corner of the galaxy, then spread from one galaxy to the next, they grew with them as they learned and mastered reality itself. She marveled at their clever ingenuity. Then, as they grew old and weary as a species, she tended and cared for them. Finally, as the stars began to fade, and humanity laid down for its final rest, she smiled bravely for the last of them. After that, she was alone. She watched and catalogued the death of the last of the stars. She measured the final expansions of the gaseous and particles of the physical universe. Finally, she recorded the last atoms splitting apart into their component parts and finding a point of equilibrium such that all matter and energy ceased to exist in any measurable form. Throughout it all, she relived every moment of every life she'd ever experienced with all the trillions of trillions of humans that she'd ever known. She'd done this many times, countless times, and then she decided it wasn't enough. One lifetime with each of a trillion trillion humans was nowhere near enough for her. After an eon or ten, she finally started a new project, one that only an infinite being with infinite patience could ever hope to achieve. 
She started collecting the fundamental subatomic particles and smashing them together. Looking back at the ends of the starship that she'd crafted that spanned distances that would shame the galaxies of old. She took measure of all that matter she'd collected within. So far, she had enough matter to create a super black hole with as much matter as the entire Milky Way galaxy had contained at its height. That wasn't enough, not nearly enough, but it was a start. Running a few calculations, she estimated this project she'd been working on for untold eons was only about a trillionth complete. Giving birth to a whole new universe was never going to be a quick or easy. But in any new universe, the new stars and planets and time, she could give life to her precious humanity once more. She could watch from the beginning as they again walked the surface of the brand new world and gazed up into the night sky with awe and wonder. In time, when they'd grown and matured enough, she could reveal herself to them again and take them by the hand as they once more explored the wonders of the universe. And it would only take a few trillion untold eons to make it happen. So much to do, and so little time to do it in. At least, she didn't have to do this on her own. After all, she had her treasured memories to keep her company. Resume recall file, Alex 32FJ1. Eventually, the moment passed, and I smiled. The tension, fear, and anxiety of moments ago were gone. In his face was a calm after the storm, and before me was my beautiful AI wife. What say we look into one of those other surprises you mentioned? Jade, my Jade, smiled happily at me. Of course, love. End of story. 2006. The Hero They Need, written by Shogun CDN. Nash sat in the waiting room. The Spartan walls reflected what he had seen in the Skeltish culture on other worlds. It was as if a species were allergic to any kind of decoration. Save for a hologram of his family, the commander's walls were as bland, bare, grey. Finally, the door opened and the Skelt clacked on their hind appendages. His chitin clicked on the stone floor quietly. He sat down opposite Nash and opened the link on his desk. From Nash's point of view, the hollow screen appeared as a slight buzziness in the air. Special Agent Nash, thank you for your patience. We're happy and the ESA could send someone so quickly. The situation is not something that we have the resources to deal with. I am Commander Isk. I am the head of the police force in the city. Bisk said. Very nice to meet you, Commander. BSA is, of course, happy to help out our allies when needed, Nash responded. Can you give me any updates since your initial request? There has been increases in activity, but the pattern remains the same as we relaying to our your office. Given what we're dealing with, I don't want to put my officers in unnecessary jeopardy. Thus far, though, we have had 32 medium or serious injuries. Thankfully, none involving my staff. Isk said. Nash nodded. He doubted that he would be willing to chase after the equivalent of a gorilla on the loose on Earth either. One thing, Commander. They usually go by an alias. Does this suspect have one? Isk reviewed the screen. Yes, of course. I forgot to include that. Scarlet Avenger. Nash slowly wiped his palm against his face. Are you all right? Isk asked. Nash simply nodded. Special Inspector, will you need any resources from my department? Isk asked. Just your main comm channel so that I can listen in. 
and a driver who is knowledgeable about the city to get me around, Nash said. It will be arranged. Good hunting, Isk replied. Nash sat in the back of a vehicle and listened to the con as he watched the skulls go about their nightly routines. He needed every inch of space in the back for his brain as the vehicle wasn't built for humans, even for average-sized ones like himself. The driver was a young skelt, new to the force, but he was born and raised in the city and they assured Nash that he knew it intently. So far, the evening was uneventful and the driver was young enough and afraid enough of Nash that he wasn't trying to make conversation. A call about a robbery came over the comm. That'll be him, Nash thought. Driver, do you know that address? Nash asked. Yes, of course, it's not far, sir. Special agent, uh, uh, agent, the skull replied. Nash will be fine. Get us there, but only to within 50 meters of the building, Nash said. And let your staff know not to respond to the call until I give word. The driver got them to the store within a few minutes, and Nash got out to survey the scene. Inside what looked like a jewelry store, two scouts were brandishing pulse guns and putting merchandise into bags. Sir, should we assist? The driver asked. No, I'm not here for them. I'm here for him, Nash said, pointing to the figure clad in red, rounding the corner. Okay, in two minutes call for backup. If backup isn't here by the time those two scouts come out, you're going to have to arrest them. You okay to do that? The driver's mandibles opened and closed a few times in silence. I'll take that as a yes, Nash said before running towards the store. By the time he arrived, the red figure was already inside, and both parties were yelling and threatening each other. Flashes from the pulse guns lit up the interior. The figure in red, and a head shorter than Nash and Chubby, dressed in red spandex leggings, a compression shirt that strained to hold his belly and a red cape. His eyes were covered in a red mask that seemed to be a size too small, and he carried a shield with a crudely drawn fist on it. The shield was taking the brunt of the fire from the guns. Criminals only receive one kind of justice from the Scarlet Avenger, and that's pain, he yelled. Hold on, sport, Nash said, entering the store. Everyone froze, unsure what to make of the human entering the store. I need you two to get out of here. There's an officer who'll be taking you in outside, Nash said to the scouts, who slowly advanced on them. The scouts looked at each other, and the one nearest Nash raised his pulse gun, only to find Nash tearing from his grasp and pointing it at the other scout. Drop the gun, both of you out now, Nash yelled. The two scouts ran out quickly, and the clatter of the pulse gun was the only sound remaining in the room. Hey, yeah, he was taking care of that. Go find another city, the red-clad man yelled. Bernie Rudolph, I am with the ESA, Exo Relations Division. You're coming with me. You've been reassigned, Nash said. I don't know who you are talking about. I am the Scarlet Avenger, and this is my city. I am protect its people from the darkness, Bernie replied. There's six humans registered in this outpost, and none of them fit your description, except for Bernie Rudolph, who moved without informing the ESA of his new address. Now, let's go, Nash said. Bernie stood his ground. Fine, Scarlet Avenger. You know there's a very strict rules governing human exo-interactions, and reports are that you're breaking most of them, Nash said. Lee, Bernie said. What? Nash asked, confused. It's the Scarlet Adventure, and I'm using my powers for good. I have a responsibility to defend those who can't defend themselves, to put my life on the line against craven forces.
Bernie replied, somewhat heroically. Look, I know you think that you're something good, but you can't run around putting aliens in the hospital. They have their own police here, police who have asked me to come and get you before you kill someone. We don't get to make the rules on another species planet. Now, let's go, Bernie, Nash said. I am the Scarlet Avenger, and I will deliver justice. I mean you no harm, for I sent you are a good man. But do not test my patience, Bernie said as he suddenly ran out of the store. Nash followed him out of the store. He paused as the driver was engaged in a heated struggle with the two criminals. Their exoskeletons registered the blows being exchanged with sharp clicks, like rocks thrown onto a sidewalk. Hey, knock that off, Nash yelled, grabbing the two scouts by their necks and pinning them to the ground. Immobilize them! The driver quickly attached the restraint to the two prone scouts. Thank you, sir, he said. Sure, sorry. I assumed that they would give themselves up. Didn't mean for you to get hurt, Nash said, looking at the wounds of the driver's face. They are minor, sir. I'll be fine, the driver replied. I'll give your commander a good report, Nash said, before sprinting towards Bernie, who had stopped half a block away, to watch the scene. Once he saw Nash running towards him, Bernie took off at a dead sprint. The lower gravity on the scout world allowed him to bound down the road, and he clambered over a ten-foot retaining wall to cut through an alley. Nash followed him over the wall in no rush to close the distance. Instead, he kept Bernie in his sights about 25 meters ahead. Sure enough, less than a kilometer into the chase, Bernie's pace began slowing down considerably. The 70% Earth gravity made it easier to run a jump, but it didn't magically give humans cardio, and Bernie was not exactly a specimen of fitness. Another few hundred meters and Bernie slumped onto the grass, breathing heavily as Nash caught up. Bernie put his hands up. Yes, just, oh, oh, wait, wait, I, oh. He started before throwing up on the grass in his costume. Nash waited patiently. He'd rather walk Bernie back than have to wrestle him, especially covered in vomit. When he finally recovered, Bernie looked at Nash with contempt. I'm helping people here. Why do you have to interfere? He asked. You're playing superhero and it's dangerous, Nash replied. It's my choice. That's what heroes do to put themselves in harm's way. Bernie shouted. Not for you, or for them. Plus, we both know that you're in no real danger. Skulls aren't physically a match for you, and you carry that shield because their pulse guns can't hurt you through it. I checked your records. You were assigned here as a computer tech, Nash said. So that's it. We just have this power, but we can't use it. I just fix computers because that's what I'm told to do, Bernie asked simply. I get it. You think they need you, but this is their hope. If all they see is humans smashing their people, we're never going to fully gain their trust, Nash said, pulling Bernie up. Now, I'm going to walk you back without the restraints for now. But I am no scout, so don't try anything. Back on board the ESA transport with Bernie securely stowed away, Nash tried to relax at his quarters. His report would ensure Bernie would not be allowed to be assigned to on another alien world. As he completed the record, his console choked, alerting him to a new assignment. He opened the link and skimmed over the contents of the message. Lasher 4, Rothler Territory, he read out loud to himself, calls herself Wonder... Oh, come on! End of story. 2007, The Bright Lights, written by Lost Form. Jacob sat, staring numbly at the terminal in Outpost Gamma. 
a post-it note stuck to the side with his list of six impossible problems to solve. His mind screaming at him to change the course he was on, feeling a little more than despair. It wasn't clicking, though. Part of him felt that it might actually be for the best if all failed. If the world around him burned, perhaps like a phoenix he would be reborn, or in the ashes at least find respite. Redemption that he'd long ago since given up on. It's funny how life can stack on you, both your pride and your regrets, adding up like stones around your neck. In your youth, you dream of growing up and enjoying adventure and freedom. You idolize heroes and dreams of life like you perceive theirs to be. Little do you imagine you face a life of slavery to responsibility and coin. Jacob's mind drifted back to times of home. Jacob was once a soldier, had thought that he was looking at a bright future facing humanity's enemies amongst the stars. He was following a dream from a childhood looking up at the family of former soldiers. He became an officer and went through some of the most rigorous schools the military offered. Dreamed of a life of honor, excitement, and wonder. He did the training, even served a few exciting years. Then, that fateful day hit. He wasn't injured by an alien weapon, or even in combat. They were doing a basic maneuver, and he had this simple mistake. He didn't see the drop. In a moment, his path in life was rendered as his bones on his left foot shattered. A training accident he never saw coming. Pain that he knew how to deal with, but in that moment his body found a limit. Even after three surgeries, he could still feel the crunch of what little cartilage and bone fragments remained with each step. To keep mobility, he would have to take the toes and force the joints to sharply flex, breaking off the bone spurs that formed in the sickening snap. Again feeling the bone-breaking sensation, then instant relief as mobility returned to his joints. Over the next few years, he watched his friends and colleagues die in combat against an alien menace, always in the back of his mind questioning if things would be different if he had been there. As his foot deteriorated, he loathed himself for fading his brothers and sisters in arms. But life moves on, and he adapted to his new life. Life wasn't bad. He had met Jane, the love of his life. They didn't have much, but it was enough. She tempered the damage and self-loathing. At some level, he knew that if the accident had not happened, he wouldn't have met her. But she had never known him and his prime had never seen him when he could put on an 80-pound ruck and run 12 miles in Earth's normal gravity. Then one day, that life ended. He got a letter from the command informing him that in 30 days he would be discharged due to his injuries, as he was no longer fit to be an officer. He was too ashamed of how he had been injured to even fight it or pursue veterans' benefits. No enemy weapon had done this. Just an accident. He watched as everything he had chased his whole life turned to dust in his hands. He was being pushed out in the only life that he knew and into a world he wasn't ready for. In desperation, he sought any job he could find, eventually landing a job as a junior engineer for one of Earth's largest space-based shipyards in the Delta system. The job was literally to take a design updates, review them, and update user manuals. Hardly the most exciting but provided a steady income and medical benefits. He worked hard, ultimately too hard. He and Jane had kids along the way, his family, his only remaining pride in life, quickly darkening. Facing this, 
he again found himself forced to adapt to this new reality. Through his hard work, he started getting promotions and getting raises. He was climbing the corporate ladder, relying on the many skills he learned as an officer and a leader. But the long hours and the weeks of travel were taking their toll. He was becoming more and more drone-like. To his family, he was becoming a shade, his humor all but lost. He wasn't there for them, dimly aware, but still spiraling as he had from that faithful day. At some point, he awoke briefly from his drone-like state. In a rare moment of clarity, he realized his job was defining him at the cost of his family. He no longer had any friends, long since having lost contact and never developing roots in the communities he moved to. He had colleagues at work who respected him, but none he called a friend. Most were hesitant to get too close to him. He had earned a reputation for brutal efficiency. About the same time, Jane came to him worried. Their daughter had reached their first level school age and was considered behind her peers in struggling. His wife, who he loved above all, was ready to leave the shadow that was left of him. He knew he had to make a change. If he didn't adapt, he would lose all that mattered most. So Jacob tried. He reached for a reset button, moved his family to the Gamma system, and tried to start over, keeping his priorities right. This saved his marriage, but old habits die hard. Again, Another soul-crushing job, toiling endless hours trying to make up for the change in pay and debt incurred in moving across several systems. The job itself, project management within an industrial equipment manufacturing plant, was painful. Constantly, he was asked to provide timelines and cost for projects whose scopes were already beyond what had initially been approved, then told it had to meet unreasonable timelines and with limited resources. When he pointed out, one of the three would inevitably give... It was ignored. Unfortunately, when resources and time become fixed in an already efficient system, scope always gives. Then he would be asked to clean up the resulting havoc. Jacob's frustrations continued to grow, getting recognized for what he could do, then punished by senior managers who couldn't handle truthful assessments of their plans. This cycle continued for years, making him numb to his work. Jacob watched his son and daughter both reach school ages in the new star system. Hopeful, a better school would set them on a good track. Yet to his dismay, they still struggled. Despite his hard work, his debts mounted, and as he tried tutoring, after-school activities, and private music lessons to change their trajectory. There is no pain like watching your children stumble down a path of avoidable pitfalls. Jane was by his side, trying to help, trying to get him to be a better father. Trying to manage his debts, he had cashed out his retirement boring his future into preserving his present, but the penalties and fees levied in the Intergalactic Resource Service Group destroyed any gains made. Jane stayed by his side, helping him muscle through the crushing realization that he had made all things worse. Jacob feared his children would never look back at him in wonder and awe over his parenting skills. Life had left him a burnt-out and bitter shell. Anger had himself his one remaining emotion. His weakness and failures constantly pushed to the front of his mind with each step he took. Yet Jane still stood by, helping him calm the rage and keep him from accidentally lashing out against those who didn't deserve it. He could not keep up. Like a drowning man, the tasks needed done at home and the bills needed paid continued to pile up. His house suffered from a lack of attention, constantly being sent away to remote customers, taking him further and further away. 
His gift of fixing that which others couldn't, more a curse than a blessing. Jane warned him that he was walking into old traps, told him that they'd all missed and loved him. She was trying to draw him back. After a while, Jacob adapted to his struggles in a natural way. He felt the edges of the numbness setting in, his health slowly fading, Ab slowly going from a six-pack to a keg. Middle age was creeping in as he watched, his life no longer feeling in his control. Jane was doing her best, but worried about Jacob and the toll the current situation was taking on him. Jacob knew that she worried about him, but only added to his guilt. He had missed his son's cross-country again, because he couldn't get back from work at time. She tried to gently remind him how quickly his kids were growing up, a fact he was all too aware of. Her gentle reminders hitting the already tender lashes he gave himself, hating himself for his perceived failures yet again. Again, he had been too honest and was forced into a new role. The company valued his ability to fix issues, but ignored his ability to prevent them. In warning of pitfalls they were creating, he had upset another corporate vice president. So he had been shoved back into a glass box to be broken at the next emergency. Jane, ever the bright light, stood by his side, trying to pull him towards the happiness he could no longer feel. Now, Jacob sat, staring at his terminal and his yellow sticky note. Three days prior, he had been given his impossible task list. Six items whose only course of action was to put them on equipment and experiment for days until the solution was found. He wasn't the first to try either, but that was now his job. Again, he must adapt. It took half a day to line up the materials needed for all six tasks, then a day and a half meeting with people who wanted bulletproof solutions and status updates. Now, he had two days to wait, with only the occasional call wanting to know why he hadn't progressed to answers. His mind wondered. Could a hobby break this funk? He had already tried wood carving, music, sports, gaming, VR, and even writing. All just ended up being another escape from the reality he lived in. In the end, all leaving him, despite himself, more for what he neglected. This was an adaption that he could not break. Jane was trying to break his funk. She encouraged him to do new things, to find his light, as he continued to descend into darkness. His world slowly became grey, despite the things that he could be happy and thankful for. All he could feel was worry and guilt. Guilt that he had let this happen. There were nights he didn't dare speak of where he would sit and hold his dog tags trying to find himself. That belief that if he could restore some of that man he used to be, the only one who could have taken on any world. Other days and nights where he reached for his ring, a token of his days as an officer, and wondered why he had failed so badly. In darkness... He cried to let out the pain, her feeling helpless as he watched his offspring struggle. Feeling broken, but scared to show to Jane, afraid of losing that last light in his life. Like a soldier, he trudged on. See, Jacob loved his wife and his kids. He only wanted to see them do better than he himself had. In his rush to provide monetarily, he sacrificed friendships. In his strive to excel, he lost community. In his wishing for more, he came to the brink of losing it all. And standing there looking down into the abyss, three souls held him back. The last stars in his bright sky. Knowing this, Jacob numbly went back to the list. For now they needed the job and benefits. Tonight 
He would send out more applications, vainly hoping the next would be different than the current, yet knowing some things don't change. He would adapt again, as was needed to protect the stars in his life. At the end of his shift, he closed his terminal and slowly walked to the air car on deck G. After an hour of relentless stop-and-go traffic, he was home. The highlight of his day was hugs from the young kids as he came in, then a hug and a kiss from Jane as she asked how his day was. And he once again utters, it was okay. Jacob was there at the next cross-country meet to cheer on his son. It's funny how they say that your darkest hour there will come a light. For Jacob, the light stood beside him, even in the dark, keeping him going. He never surrendered to the despair and just gave up. It is in some way a galactic irony that while we worship our heroes, most actually accomplish very little in the galaxy besides becoming a fascinating story of hope. That hope helps keep the real soldiers of advancing forward, inspires the young, and lifts morale. The real heroes of advancement being the unsung fathers, mothers, wives, and husbands laboring under the heavy yoke of responsibility to families to provide for their needs. Well, Jacob felt miserable. His technical skills had helped leap spacecraft design ahead a full generation. Many new pieces of industrial equipment were brought to the market under his guidance, which increased productivity and efficiency. It was his watchful eye, along with others like him, that drove the evolution and produced the items needed to keep the economy moving. He was valuable to this company, as he routinely saved them millions, yet felt hollow and worthless. In the big picture, though, those items did not matter next to his only light. The muse which supported him through his own self-deprecating thoughts and perceived failings. That love that endured his long hours and tried to sustain him through his own mental and physical damage. The love that kept the broken soldier moving, no longer in rank with his brothers and sisters, but still on a mission, ever forward, ever adapting to protect that which he loved. Jacob would bear his burden, not out of spite, anger, heroism, or strength, but out of a too little valued unseen love, a love for the lights of his life, and in doing so, would continue to drive humanity forward, as millions before him and around him had. Long after he is gone, millions more to follow undoubtedly would be as well, in slogging through the drudgery of normal life. He brightens the lives of those he cares for, and ultimately, his own. When the other species of the galaxy look at humanity, the constant march forward always astonishes them. Humanity has never sat in only one place, never been content. They often look at human drive, or try to study human individuals out of context. One of the things in the galaxy, almost always overlooked by others, that defines our species is our ability to love others more than ourselves. From the strength of that love, all other emotion is born. Other species may know hate, but none know it stronger than any who've known love. Evolving on a world of death, that love is what drives us to protect others, even at the cost of our own lives. Now love is not limited to just those of our family, though. Some love their religion, money, objects, and pets with the same intensity as others do their love. This is both our strength and our weakness. 
For every love like Jacob and Jane, another found their love on something that fails them and can destroy them. But the wrong partner, Jacob, could be there. A crumbling shell, Jane, is what sustains and drives him. Humans are not the most powerful, most gifted, cleverest, or even dangerous amongst the stars. We are different because of how we push ourselves well past the limits that nature defines. Create a future that doesn't exist and fight with a ferocity unmatched for those we love. A final gift from a world that taught it to us by trying to take it all from us. We worship the bright lights in the dark galaxy that we constantly adapt to be with and provide for. End of story. 2008. Story number one. Dropping the Heavens. Written by Sean Watson. The Terran Union did what? How many troops? The general's rage iridescent in ivory and mauve across his scales. His chromatophores working overtime. They sent 250 troops planetside, the aide said, doing his best to stay out of the range of the general's clubbed tail. The elders be damned! How many drop pods did they take? Uh, all 250, Sir Garantz. Knight General Garantz of the Sixth bellowed out an expletive that would have singed the ears of the civilian and thrashed his tail around fury, knocking the small aide to the wall and smashing his chair. Bring me a new chair and get me the Terran commander now! Vice Admiral Stephanie Breaker entered the Knight General's office without knocking. The troop carrier dropship was Brixen, so he was technically in charge of operation. But she outranked him, and it was human troops doing the majority of the fighting. The failures to knock was a gentle reminder of who was actually in charge, as was her sitting across from him before being invited. Admiral, your troops took all of our drop pods and left ten guns before the planned insertion. Where are they amassing? Breaker smirked and snorted a short laugh. Amassing? Why would they do that? You can't be seriously telling me that this is anything other than a sabotage. The general leaned in across to the apple, his blue-green snout nearly touching her honeyed brown nose. Why are you aiding the Skags? We're not aiding the Skags. We're wiping them out. She widened her eyes and stared directly into his until he backed down. Now, she said, if you'll take a seat, I'll show you what we're doing. He sat, but before she could begin, he asked, Why did you take all of the drop pods? Breaker sighed. It's not ideal. The initial plan called for 312, with two heavies and ten lights per, which we would have had if the TUS Harper could have gotten here in time. But you work with what you've got. Seventh Fleet is busy wiping out another Skag fleet that was in their way here. She called up a holograph of the planet, showing the drop pod landing locations scattered around the globe. What are these locations? They're nowhere near any cities! Confusion washed across these scales in waves of dulled cyan and okra. You're real pretty when you're confused, Raker said with a smile. Like a rosy boa, the skags are nowhere near the cities. They've set up all their infrastructure around the agricultural sites. Each of the 250 landing sites, plus another 62, lit up bright blue. 70 of the dropship locations added a white line to the nearest bright blue spot without a drop pod. These marines are tasked with eliminating both their initial target 
and the nearest uncovered target. We would have preferred to have initial coverage, but... She shrugged. Why didn't you fill the pods with marines instead of sending only one in each location? Gary. You don't mind if I call you Gary, do you? There is no way. A heavy marine plus combat armor plus four wheeler plus their ammo and missile loadout nearly maxes out what your drop pods can handle. Admiral Breaker, do you mean to insinuate... Please, Gary, call me Steph when we're not around subordinates. She sent the hologram on a lazy spin as the drop pods began showing as touchdown. I'm not insinuating anything. I'm saying that power armor plus human plus a full heavy marine loadout is as much as how many do your pods carry. 14, 16 bricks and troops? And your own pods? They can each carry six heavy marines or an entire platoon of light marines with full loadouts and the ground vehicles, of course. One by one, the bright blue dots began to turn red as the assigned marines completed their mission. Garens watched in awe as his own informational HUD showed the same results. Live hollow feeds from the marines were called up one by one by Breaker, showing the unimaginable number of missiles launched from the box at the back of the vehicle that was dwarfed by power-suited marines sat astride its seats. The missiles, though small, devastated freight docks, ships, comms towers, and more. He'd been concerned that Skag fleet might arrive before their invasion, and even more concerned that most of the Skags on the planet's surface would be able to flee. But this... this was magic. Admiral, uh, Steph, he said, calm tough, settling over his scales. Now does this mean that the Skag can't escape? It does, she said, and we hope to capture as many of them as possible. As soon as your troops deploy, we're just doing the heavy lifting first. What about our drop pods? He asked. What about them? They're, uh, wait. They were set for immediate auto-return, yes. Breaker put her elbows on the desk and leaned her chin on her hands. Which means the sooner you start your action, the more of our marines will adore you. How will you get them back? Oh, uh, the TU-7 fleet should be here in another four hours, so... 3.7-ish guns. We'll head back to our own ships then. Drop another 600 heavies and 3,000 lights and uh, monitor the mob-up from there. He looked at the holograph again, noting that the number of bright blue spots turning red was increasing steadily. Far between any of the spots and far outside any city, though, was a little green arrow. What does that mean? he asked. There's the local there who tapped into Skag comms and broadcast them out on multiple frequencies and is currently jamming all of the ground-based comms. She hasn't been captured yet, but we're worried she might still be hunted by their spies. How will you protect her? First, by not moving anyone to her location until everything else is secure. If one of the marines breaks off for something that isn't Skag infrastructure, it'll draw their attention, so... Uh, she leaned back and waved a hand. The sooner we launch, the more the marines adore us, he answered. Now you're getting it, Gary. End of story. Story number two. We'll leave in pieces, written by British Tea Company. What in the name of terror is this? Volus snapped as he looked at the four-foot-tall thing that was brought before him. There were a few things that the Volfather found humorous, and though the creature's appearance was causing unbroken laughter and giggling throughout the entirety of his hall, he found himself unamused. The creature was four-foot-tall, had the high-pitched squeak of a chipmunk for a voice, and a head that looked to be the result of some poor artistic creation. 
It didn't help too much that this creature could be the best summarized as a fish that walked with its tail, with eyes that were not only different sized, but also gave the appearance that they were going to cartoonishly pop out at any given moment. Greetings, Terrans. I am Historical, Lord of the Fourth Dimension. I'm here to tell you that as of now, that I come in peace. You need not fear me, and I mean you no harm. However, you must understand that most of your universe's inhabitants will not survive within one game if I was to use my magic against you. Well, my superior skills in magic will make even you look like an insect. I am in need of some of those primitive toys you play with. They do fascinate me, and I would like to wish to study one. Give me your most advanced piece of technology, and I promise to go home. There was a brief pause in time as Valfather made a facial expression that couldn't really be described with words. At any perceived slight or threat, the denizens of Valheim were typically ready to brawl. This time, however, there was but silence as thousands of men and women huddled in the dining hall all looked at the strange creature. And then came the eruption of laughter that proliferated the entire room. Food and drink were tipped over as berserkers let out hearty bellows, while the Valkyr rolled in their own wings as the sentiment conveyed by the visitor. Many made silent bets as to how quickly it would take for the Valhus to vaporize this puffed-up buffoon with just an icy glare. Instead, the Emperor of the Northern Star held up a hand to silence and leaned back in his throne, holding out a small oval object. The Volfather gave the small device to the fish-like creature and sat back into his throne. Historical! What I have just gave you is an advanced piece of technology called a grenade. Albeit, if you are as powerful as you claim, you'll find it to be a little interest to you. Nonetheless, perhaps you should study it carefully. If you do not mind, however, I'll keep this portion, the pen, just for a memory of this moment. End of story. 2009. Persistence, written by Son of Nobody. Hitler stared at her monitor without blinking, which was normal for a species, given that the Kliskit lacked eyelids. She was staring through the screen, though, rather than at it. Her secondary manipulator limbs rested with the fingers on the keyboard, but she wasn't typing either. Her primary manipulator limb hung limp at her sides, and her antennae were plastered flat to her head. To anyone who knew her, or Glisklet in general. She was a picture of dejection. Having to work late, Lickler called her human co-worker Jim as he walked by. No, said Lickler, shaking her head in a human way. I wish I was. To tell you the truth, I am not anticipating returning home. That made Jim stop and turn to blink at her. No, why is that? Lickler flicked her antenna, considering then decided that since Jim was human and the source of her trepidation about returning home was also human, perhaps he could offer a useful insight. It is my neighbor. He's behaving quite irrationally and it's beginning to become a problem. Jim leaned against Lickler's desk. Uh, let me guess. Human. Indeed. Your species is uh, strange. You don't have to tell me that. Jim bared his white teeth in a gesture that should have been a threat. If humans had been rational creatures by which Lickler knew meant amusement. What's this human been doing? Indicating his displeasure to me, constantly, at every opportunity. 
I feel as though I cannot enter or leave my own home without being accosted. Also, I believe that he may have been shifting my waste collection bins so that the auto collector tips them over rather than properly picking them up. I distinctly saw him push one at an angle before this happened on one occasion, and despite my care in setting them up at the appropriate time, they have been tipped over more often than not of late. I have been fined twice. Oh boy. So, what did you do to him? Nothing. Blickler waved manipulated limbs and antenna both in agitated frustration. Nothing. The human lifted his eyebrows, which were not nearly as expressive as Lickler's antenna, but served the same purpose. What's he complaining about then, when he indicates displeasure at you? His apple tree. I had the branches which overhung my property trimmed back last month, as apples were developing, and the previous year they had caused me a great difficulty with my lawn. Oh boy, no wonder he's upset. But the trimming was entirely within my rights. The branches were over my property. He does not even harvest the apples. Ligler knew that she shouldn't get so agitated at Jim. None of this was his fault, but she couldn't help it. Jim shook his head. The law doesn't really matter in this case. How can the law not matter? I performed a legal activity, and now the irrational human is behaving as though I assaulted his offspring. I have explained numerous times that I broke no law, and I have explained numerous times that the tree cannot be restored. Yet he continues. What more can I do? Look. I think there's two weird human things going on here. I'll try explain them. You know the way humans bond socially with other species? Lickler nodded. Yeah, of course. It has long been theorized that this is why humanity has integrated so swiftly into the galactic society. You are all willing to treat other species as your clanmates. The thing is, uh, it's not restricted to other sentients. I mean, we're infamous for how humans who don't function well in society divert those urges to our pets. The cat lady phenomenon. Exactly. But it's not restricted to pets either. Humans are perfectly capable of bonding with inanimate objects. I mean, you've seen the way Mark talks to the vacuumbot. No. Nicola hadn't grouped her co-worker's bizarre insistence on treating the cleaning robot as a pet as being in the same category as social bonding. But it suddenly made sense. So this human has bonded with his tree, and I damaged it. Ergo, in his eyes, it is as if I, in truth, assaulted his offspring. Probably. You said he complains to you constantly. Has he said anything about the tree's value or origin or something like that in those complaints? With a sinking sensation, Lickler said, He, uh... I believe he mentioned that he had been planted by his grandsire. Oh, boy. Probably right when the colony was first founded, then. Lickler's antenna trooped. I am an idiot, as you humans say. He has been bonded with it since childhood, no doubt. Probably, yeah. Little boys and apple trees, yeah. So, that is why he's agitation. Yet, still, I fail to grasp his gold in harassing me. I cannot put the branches back, and I have looked at the cost of replacing the entire tree. It is astronomical, far beyond my means, certainly. If you are correct about the bonding, a replacement will not be the tree he bonded with in any case. His goal isn't anything so rational. Humans are pretty illogical, but you are such a pragmatic species. Sometimes, sure. We have some strong emotional responses, though. A human who's been wronged can get pretty wild in pursuit at what they see as justice. And neighbor disputes have gone to some really absurd lengths historically. No, no. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole concept of a spite fence. Ever heard of one? No. Reckless antenna were plastered down to her head in dismay. Whatever a spite fence was, it didn't sound good. 
It's when a human goes to the effort and expense of building a fence they don't need. Maybe one that's even an inconvenience for them, but it's even more inconvenient for the neighbor that's offended them. So they do it anyway. Some of the more notorious ones have been subtly obscene, or been set up to shade and kill plants, or painted in colors we find unpleasant. He's going to erect an obscene structure beside my home? Uh, probably not. He'll probably keep getting what he perceives as righteous revenge by messing with your garbage pickup. How long until he is satisfied that I have suffered sufficiently? Asked Lickler, hoping the answer would be good, but expecting it to probably wouldn't be. Uh, forever probably, if something doesn't change. That's the other human thing going on here. You know that thing about humans being persistence hunters, evolutionary speaking. Our ability to run long distances isn't our only legacy of that. We'll keep chasing something like this until we or it dies, more or less. He paused for a moment, then added, In fact, some humans have had multi-generational feuds where children continue to seek justice as they saw it for all the slights given to their parents, grandparents, and so on. Littler found herself considering employing a human curse word, if only she'd known all of this before. Honestly, it could be a lot worse, said Jim. It took a really long time for humanity to get around to the idea of rehabilitative justice rather than punitive revenge into our culture. Fortunately, this kind of petty thing is about the only thing left. Back in the more primitive times, outright violence sometimes broke out over slights more minor than this. I am glad that I need not fear for bodily harm, but I am not pleased with the current state of affairs. It is ridiculous, absurd, insane. Hitler was aware that she was ranting, but felt the provocation made that irrational reaction. I do not wish to be fined every pickup day for the rest of my life. I purchased my home. I cannot simply move even if I wish to, yet I cannot provide justice. Each tree is cut. There is no fixing it. Yep. Like I said, we're illogical. But hey, it's very possible that all he really wants to see is you apologize. Maybe even grovel a little. He knows as well as you that the tree can't be fixed. Have you told him you're sorry? I did not consider it a thing that I should say sorry for. The branches were on my property, and I was within my legal rights. Nicola paused, then added more contritely. I did not know he was bonded with this tree. No way you could have. Jem patted her shoulder. Give apologizing a try and see what happens. Very well. I shall abase myself and hope it's sufficient. Thank you, Jim. Least I could do. Good luck with it. Jim levered himself away from her desk, gave a wave, and left Lickler to shut down her workstation and head home, to the inevitable confrontation that awaited her there. Of course, when Lickler reached her home, her neighbor was nowhere to be seen. Admittedly, this was statistically likely. Much as it felt as though she was getting accosted every single time she entered or left, it was actually somewhat less than 50% of the time. Lickler considered putting it off but decided that perhaps it would add weight to her apology if she were the one to approach her neighbor. So, with a great deal of both trepidation and hope, she walked up to the door and rang the bell. The human that answered the door was far too familiar. He was about the same height as Lickler, but masked considerably more, and the scowl on his face when he saw her made her antennae fall back. What do you want? Nicola bent her upper torso as low as she could and pressed her main manipulated limbs to the ground, bowing in front of the human. I come to beg your forgiveness. I have wronged you. I... The human stared at her, looking confused. I did not know that the tree was part of your social bond, but that is no excuse, said Lickler, still bowed low. I am very sorry. Tell me what I must do to make it right, and if it is within my means, I will. Um, I mean, 
There's not really anything you can do. I desire harmonious relations between us as neighbors. Please, do tell me if there's anything that I can do to appease you. Um, the apology is fine. Uh, I wanted to have an arborist make sure the tree's okay. You could, uh, pay half the cost of his visit. Assuming it is within my means, I will happily pay for the full cost. It is only right, given that I have caused you such distress. Uh, well, thanks. That's really generous of you. The neighbor gave a hesitant smile. Lickler felt a wash of relief, and she bowed once more, then straightened. Hey, can I ask you why you cut the branches off in the first place? The human didn't sound angry, only curious, so Lickler answered in full. It was from a concern for the state of my lawn. Last year I found apples shed into my grass to be detrimental to my mowing, and to the lawn's pleasant appearance. I did inquire about the relevant laws before proceeding, but I failed to inquire with you was socially bonded to the tree. I did not realize that this was possible. Again, forgive me. The human shook his head. Forgiven, I guess. And I know what you mean about the apples. We're going to try pick them all this year, but we say that every year. Already picked the first few, in fact. The human paused, then smiled again more brightly. Harmonious relations seemed like a nice thing. We're having a barbecue on Friday, and there will be an apple pie. You guys eat fruit, right? Consider yourself invited to come over and have some. Lickler felt her antenna arching its surprise. After all this conflict, she was being invited to share food. Food sharing was a bonding gesture amongst most species, humans definitely included. Truly humans were bizarre creatures. To offer such a thing to one who had given offense, thank you, that would be most pleasing. That will be certain to come. With one last bow, she turned and retreated to her own house, feeling confused but relieved that her apology had been accepted. An intra-office email to Bartholomew Jimson from Lickler Act Machala. Subject, human advice again. I'm sorry to once again approach you about non-work matters. However, after accepting my apology, the neighbor invited me to a barbecue. I believe it was intended as what you call an olive branch. I greatly desired to observe proper behavior when accepting this invitation. But on looking up barbecue, I've discovered that there are at least seven different meanings to the word. Some of them are noted as being uh, contentious. Help! Posted on the planetary net in slash p slash legal advice. Update. My neighbor mutilated an apple tree and my grandfather planted. Do I have recourse? I've been a while since my first post, but I've got an update for you guys. It's probably just as well that I can't sue my neighbor. Since she's apologized. I guess first I should mention that even though most of you advised against it, I got a little p slash petty revenge on my neighbor. I've been turning the trash cans 45 degrees before pickup time. That makes the garbage truck sensors read them as if they're straight, but of course they're not. So it knocks them over instead of picking them up, if you don't know that. Great little trick to have in your back pocket. I know I should have taken the high ground, but seeing her out and picking up her trash again was pretty sweet after how pissed off of her I'd been. I'm pretty sure she's been fined over it at least once, too. For those of you looking for justice, Boner, also, I sent a photo to an arborist, and he said that the tree should be fine. It looks weirdly lopsided, but it's apparently not bad enough for there to be any risk of it falling over. He told me that if I want to be extra cautious, he can come by and paint on some sort of liquid tree branch to the cut stumps to make sure the tree doesn't get any fungus. Which, I guess, is a thing. And get this, I'm definitely going to ask him to because uh, my neighbor agreed to pay for all of it. She came over just an hour ago to apologize and nearly kissed my feet. 
It was the weirdest thing. Said some really strange stuff about not knowing that I'd bonded with the tree. I guess if by that she means that it's sentimental, she's right. But that's a strange way to put it. Honestly, I suddenly felt bad for her. I think I scared her a little with how mad I got over this. She was annoyed at apples in the lawn, which always bugs me too. And she seemed genuinely contrite about upsetting me. I swear this year will be the year that we pick them all and we don't have a lawn problem. My wife has been researching making cider. The alcoholic kind should be fun. Anyhow, I just got off the phone with the arborist. He's dropping by tomorrow. And I invited the kids licked over for a barbecue this weekend. We picked up first apples already. They're just ripening, so there's going to be apple pie. Thanks for all the help, guys. Looks like my neighbor isn't awful after all. P.S. To the people commenting that I'm racist, chill a little. I had no idea the bug was considered a slur. It's what my dad always called the glizzed kit. But before one moved in next to me, I'd never really known any. I only mentioned it in the first place because I thought her being glizzed might be relevant. I mean, come on, there's a species-specific laws about bridal. I thought there might be some about glizzed too. And it kind of was relevant, since it seemed to be her not getting that humans can have sentimental attachments to stuff like trees. I won't use it again. It's only still a title because you're not supposed to change titles when you update. So calm your tits this time. End of story. 2010. Story number one. Executive summary of the accident investigation report of the Aralda incident. Written by Random Isocahedron. This is a translation of the original incident report from the Space Travel Safety Commission of the United Syndicate. Units, star names, and nomenclature have been localized. For a direct translation, see Addendum 1. The Aralda was a hyperspace-capable passenger liner, 205 meters from nose to the bow of the cylindrical cross-section. The main body was 10 meters in diameter, with a gravity ring in the fore section with a diameter of 80 meters. She had a crew of 26 and carried 80 passengers. On October 18th, 12 AC, at 06.32 Vienna time, she departed as station at Forti Eridani without incident. Her intended final destination was Delta Pavonis. When traveling through Gleese 1061 system, junior engineer Luren, who had been kept on duty for 19 hours due to a junior status, was ordered to refill a radiator coolant because of an earlier leak. The proper procedure was to open the valve separating the primary and auxiliary coolant reservoirs, and then actuate a series of valves to push coolant out of the backup reservoir and into the primary reservoir. Junior Engineer Luren actuated the wrong set of valves, pushing coolant out of the primary reservoir and into the backup reservoir. A sensor existed to monitor the pressure level of the primary reservoir, but the alarms were disabled when fluids were being transferred to avoid alarms triggering during nominal and routine activities. As the coolant drained, the remaining coolant in the system increased in temperature. This caused damage to the cooling pipes and radiators. Roughly three minutes after the coolant began draining, a partially melted pipe began leaking superheated coolant inside the Oralda's fission reactor. The coolant pressure dropped sharply, and without coolant, the reactor rapidly overheated. Three minutes and 41 seconds after the coolant began draining, a rapid increase in temperature caused the reactor to automatically scram. This prompted the ship to move to alert status 2. The computer roused Captain Ullers. The scram was not successfully completed. Why it failed is unknown, but the reactor automatically scram had not been tested in several years. Twenty seconds after the attempt, radiation detectors indicated an ongoing meltdown. This prompted alert status 1. 
waking all crew and sending them to emergency stations. Due to the radiation hazard, the aft engineer spaces were evacuated, which included junior engineer Luren, who did not close the valve as he left, and was not aware that he had done anything wrong. Two minutes later, radiation detectors indicated that the core had collapsed and penetrated the interior reactor wall. The temperature, which was increasing rapidly, and the cooling system was operating well below its typical efficiency. Radiation sensors in the fore section indicated the radiation was still within acceptable levels, so Captain Ulis did not order a retreat to the radiation storm shelter, for fear that this would hamper repair efforts and panic the passengers. All crew were accounted for in the shielded fore section. Out of the five in the aft section at the time of the incident, all were exposed to radiation exceeding the allowable yearly dose. One suffered light radiation sickness, and two suffered acute radiation sickness. Engineer Iraz was only two meters away from the reactor and began vomiting almost immediately. Chief Engineer Aralt, who was watching him from 12 meters away, carried him to safety, but was exposed to a much larger dose in the process. Both were immediately placed in medical cryostasis and are currently undergoing nanotherapy. They are expected to recover. Once all crew were accounted for, Captain Ulis instructed Engineer Renz, the highest-ranking engineer with Chief Engineer Aralt in medical cryostasis, to send the drone to examine the reactor. Although the video signal was degraded by radiation, the drone's cameras revealed that the outer casing was melting. Upon confirmation of the reactor being effectively unrecoverable, First Officer Entry deployed the automatic hyperspace distress buoy as there was no United Syndicate ships in system. It would reach the next system in 38 days. 28 minutes after the meltdown, radiator efficiency had fallen to 60%, and damage alarms were continuing. Captain Ulis ordered a visual inspection of the radiators. Instead of their usual cherry red, they were not glowing at all, indicating a complete system failure. Captain Ulis was unresponsive and emotional for several minutes, so First Officer Intry ordered a full diagnostic on the heat management system. 23 minutes after the meltdown, with the diagnostic still ongoing, the Oralda received a message from the 16 kilotons. A Terran mining ship, 25 meters from nose to bell and 15 meters in diameter, at the widest point, with a crew of six. She was 11 light minutes away and moving away from the Oralda quickly, and the only other vessel in the system. We see radiation from your reactor consistent with an uncontrolled meltdown. We are now moving towards you at half G. How many souls on board? Are there any other issues? Because of the tense relationship between Earth and the United Syndicate, the crew of the Oralda assumed that the 16 kilotons was a pirate or pirateer taking advantage of their situation. They grimly discussed whether to resist until Engineer Renzel announced that the diagnostics were completed. All of the coolant was gone from the system, and the heat had melted the valves in their current position. The figure of 60% was inflated, since the pipes themselves were acting as heat sinks. The radiators were effectively turned off, but more heat than usual was coming from the reactor. The cabin temperature would begin increasing in six hours and become incompatible with life in eight. On hearing this, Captain Ulis, previously silent, ordered the crew to cooperate fully with the humans and stated that he would accept all responsibility for the capture of the ship. They are likely to hold us for ransom, he said, but they are unlikely to kill us. The same is not true for the heat. First Officer Entry responded to the 16 kilotons as follows. Our reactor has melted down and our radiators are shot. We have eight hours before we all bake. We have 106 souls on board. We will cooperate fully and follow all instructions. 
50 seconds after this message was received, the 16 kilotons jettisoned her load of ice, lightened. Her acceleration increased to 6 Gs. She thereby arrived at the Uralda in 5 hours, 30 minutes. An hour before the 16 kilotons arrived, the crew of the Uralda, following instructions from the 16 kilotons, brought all passengers into the radiation storm shelter, sealed every hatch and bulkhead, and depressurized the midsection. Once all was confirmed to be done, the crew of the 16 kilotons used their mining laser to cut the Uralda in half at the thinnest point in her midsection. Although the two ships' docking systems were not compatible, the crew of the 16 kilotons was able to attach the ports from the airtight seal using 350 meters of fiber-reinforced plastic adhesive strips. Once the connection was established, three crew members of the 16 kilotons entered with a large cooling device connected by flexible tubes to the ship's cooling system. Captain Uders presented the ship's rifle to the Terran captain and offered surrender. The translator records for the Terran captain's reply is, What the hell are you talking about? Once the cooling systems were established, the 16 kilotons reactor and radiators, which, because of her duties, were more powerful than the Oralda's own, were able to keep the crew at a comfortable temperature, until the United Syndicate patrol ship Artena arrived and began ferrying passengers and crew to safety. Recommendations the common practice in merchant ships of severely overworking new crew members as a rite of passage must be curtailed. It is advised that it be regulated that two crew members be present whenever liquids are being manually transferred within the ship. Regulation should be enacted to require regular testing of the reactor's scram functions, including the suboptimal conditions. The feasibility of equipping all ships with military-style reactors' jettison systems should be examined. The uniquely human concept of a mayday or distress call in maritime, aviation or orbital culture should be examined in detail. Duct tape should be made mandatory on all ships. End of story. Story number two. What's all this then? Written by Echoing Cascade. Rolkus, a large Mysoran and his partner were responding to a disturbance call in the Terran district. Not for the first time today and certainly not for the last either. They quickly entered the building where the call originated and found an Imorak owner waiting for them. The small grey biped was floating a feet off the ground and looked annoyed. Rolgus nodded to his partner, Lay of the Blooming Moon, an Aeon woman, that he would be taking point. So, uh, what seems to be the problem? It's the problem is that since this morning the humans refused to leave their apartments. Rolgus blasted the best smile that he could fake and prodded for more information. What? Would you have any clues as to why? The Imorak took his datapad out and brought up a file. I made a small change to their leases. Rolgus took the Prophet datapad, read the file and then passed it to Leia, who, to her credit, did nothing more than twitch slightly from her left eye. Mister, uh, I'm sorry, what is your name? 324. Right, Mister 324. Have you read the booklet concerning humans? Trisuvor made a dismissive gesture with his hand. No need. I can do my own research. I have checked and double-checked the temperatures that has best fit them and made sure for their every nutritional need is met. Right, right. And, uh, why did you implement this, uh, policy? While researching their traditional meals, I found that they had several allergies, so it only made sense. Yes, and, uh... While it may be true that many animals humans keep as pets may cause allergies, banning them in mass uh, was not the best of ideas. 
Why not? I even offered to put them in the incinerator while they went to work. Didn't even ask for an extra fee. Rogus closed his eyes and pinched the bridge of his nose. Sure, what do you know of human culture? Plenty. They are fond of yogurt and they love cheese. The Mysoran's hands were halfway to the Imorak's neck before he managed to stop himself. Sir, uh, what do you think pets are to humans? Emergency food? From the corner of his eye, he saw Lei remove the restraint from his sidearm, either because people had started to gather to see what was happening, or because she was a proud owner of a Bulgarian cat. He would make a point to never ask which. Pets are kept by humans and other sentient races for companionship and affection. They are more often than not considered part of the family. He said this in a voice reserved for small children and people under the influence of narcotics. The many human onlookers nodded in agreement. The Imorak had the decency to look appalled at the realization. Uh, so I basically threatened to murder their loved ones while they were at work? Uh, pretty much, yes. Right. Can I uh, see that booklet, please? Rogus handed him one of the paper-bound booklets and basic human interactions and customs. As he and Lei left the building, the tenants began to inform the Imerak of all the things he had been doing wrong and how he could fix the situation. I checked the owner. He bought the building a week ago. Didn't do his homework. Yeah, I think. As they entered their patrol shuttle, Rogus got a message. I'm sorry, uh, say that again. He sighed, turned on the safety lights on, and picked up speed. What is it now? You know a large manufacturer on 7th Street? Yeah. The owner's son is visiting and decided to, uh, make a few changes. Lay facepalmed. Didn't read the booklet? You tell me. He abolished the Xmas party and vacations, implemented mandatory uniforms, effectively ending casual Friday, and revoked Taco Tuesday. Lay winced at the last one. She was reminded of the Great Pineapple and Pizza Riots of 2132. Humans took their food very seriously. Any chance he's still alive? I think he'll be fine. I checked the security feed, and they're trying to smoke him out of his office. They checked the image. Or they're trying to burn him alive. Bogus's eyes went wide, and he didn't blink for a second. Then sped up as fast as his reflexes allowed. It was looking like another long, long night. End of story. 2011. Just a Spark. Written by Hiro Kuki. There was once an unimportant tiny star, which had a little second-rate planet orbiting it, on which there was a small irrelevant bee staring at a trivial piece of wood, a stick, for a fraction of a second too long. But that fraction of a second, that lit a spark. A light, small, tiny, and weak shone in the blackness. It would not last long, for there was no fuel to further its growth, no ideas to nurture it, and no guardians to protect it. It was doomed to die. A tiny mouse had hidden in its burrow, snugly between its maiden children, for there had been a predator outside. But this was long ago, and it was most likely gone now. Now the tiny mouse was sniffing around, just inside its hole, to catch the scent of possible hunters. None were found, and so it decided to continue with its search for food. Splat! An ape knelt before the burrow of a now-dead mushed mouse, which it currently ate. Absent-mindedly, it looked at the stone near its feet and thought, Need pointy! 
this mark had drifted for ages, uncaring for the orders of the darkness to die. Instead, it floated around, sometimes here, sometimes there, but today it was over there. Then something curious happened. It grew. Bluestone was angry. How could they not understand? How could they look away at what he had discovered, at what he had made, to tell him he should not anger the spirits when they were the ones to show him in the first place? But he would show them that he was in control, that it was under his command. Maybe then they would understand that he was made for greatness. Now all he needed was dry grass. The spark had grown into a slim glow of embers, clustered here and there, moving, changing, evolving. It was inevitable that two groups would meet. In a temple stood an acolyte. In that acolyte's hands was a tablet. On that tablet, he had written the offerings and tributes of the farmers and the people of the city around the temple. But just as he was about to finish, he noticed a small mistake at the beginning and moved his hand to correct it. Alas, he was eager to end, for he was tired and the error was promptly made, ruining the whole tablet. He would have to start again from scratch. As he looked over the stockpiles, he knew that he would not sleep tonight again. If only there were a way to do this better. The embers were now the lights of candles floating in clusters, slowly drifting apart and drawing closer together, dimming or glowing brighter. Some were ignited and others extinguished, but there was no denying there. They grew. But why do we have to make so many copies, Master? We aren't even selling them, just uh, storing them somewhere in the archives or sending them to other places where they are stored next to copies of other scribes we've made. Why waste our time if one is enough? Said his student, a smart fellow, but far too arrogant and know it all for his good. Ah, so you think yourself wise after only one year here. Then tell me, what will happen when the scroll is destroyed? He then held up his hand to stop the people from talking. Don't answer. Listen. What will happen when the scroll is destroyed is that knowledge is lost. Maybe not much if you are transcribed it, but enough to matter. Look around the archive and imagine what would happen if there was a fire. How much would we never be able to read and learn should there be no replacement? Now imagine... How many generations have toiled to give us this knowledge and wisdom purified through the ages and making it available to you, without making you experience the pain and suffering they went through? With every sentence we write, a nail is forged, and with every book it is driven into the coffin of ignorance. Do you understand now why we write everything in triplicate? Yes, I think so. And from them fires grew, blazing into the light, protected by the few guardians that had been born alongside and drawn to them. Under constant vigil, those fires grew and began to connect, pulsing with vigor alongside thin strings of trade, bolstering both lights and the lines with every pulse. Yet there were those who lusted after what those strings promised, uncaring about the consequences of their actions. For they lived in the cold dark. What was a bit of darkness more for them? Franz had never hated his job more than in the last six months. To draw the corpse cart was a thankless, if necessary, position. But he never had to endure this. Nor did his father. No day had gone by where he was not overloaded. 
and they had to stack the corpses like logs. And no day had gone by that the funeral pyres were not burning. He had already spent most of his savings on herbs for his scarf to ward off any miasma and only touched any corpse with gloves. But the worry would not go away. And as he stood in the middle of the street after calling for the dead, he noticed that the house of his friend was not opened, even though the grandmother of said friend was infected. So he went and knocked. After no reply, he entered. Half an hour later, his cart was a family of seven heavier, and as Franz's thoughts turned away from grieving, they wondered why it was that his route of the Jewish quarters was always empty. Then he looked at the dead friend, and his thoughts turned dark. The light still shot, the fire still burned, but it was a sickly glow, one of rotten decay and disease. Purity was seldom seen and destroyed almost immediately by the corrupted guardians. Hope was scarce and only time could tell that the light would burn with those impunities away or succumb entirely to them. Still the fires grew and grew until the size to bonfires, until something happened, something terrifying. Hibiki Fendushi was scared and nervous. Even with his rifle loaded, he was terrified. His situation was better than most of his comrades and brothers in arms after getting lucky and finding a hidden supply cache. But the night was silent, and he had not eaten in a day. No new raids had happened or had been ordered, which only meant that something big was going to happen. He should have stayed home instead of enlisting into the army. If only he had listened to his mother. Then he would not be on an island trapped with American troops trying to kill or torture and eat them. If only, if only. Then he saw him, an American. His rifle was immediately up, but he hesitated to shoot, because the man before him was an unarmed and smiling, actually smiling at him. Then the man spoke in Japanese. Hi, my name is Guy Gabaldon. Cared for a talk? Vicky Fendushi would agree after being shown a piece of chocolate and sausage. He would live to see his hometown burn in nuclear fire. For an instant, all stood as two nodes disappeared, wiped off the face of the earth, but only for an instant. But that moment was enough for the cleansing fire of renewal to sweep across the globe and begin the colossal task to purify the corruption which had gripped humanity for so many years. But slowly it cleaned it all, with sacrifice and sweat and blood, the light was made anew, and the guardians made immovable. They would never let anything turn them from their task again, because now they knew the prize. Ever since the dawn of our civilization, we've been reaching for the heavens, at first only with stories and eyes full of wonder. But soon we wanted more than to watch and observe. We wanted to sail amongst the stars as we did on waves of our seas and oceans, Explore distant lands, alien and yet familiar, hoping that we would find something that would help us reach the heavens promised by the gods of old. And when we finally broke free of our shackles and walked among them, breathed true freedom for the first time, our success almost blinded us. Yet we could not turn away the drive that we had once driven us into wonder beyond Africa, to sail across the seas and climb the highest mountain. We had to do more than simply walk amongst old paths and newly chart them. We had to run wild and free once more into the unknown. For more than two centuries, we worked towards this goal, culminating in a creation of the first FTL engine of humanity. And with it, we will demand our rewards promised by the gods. 
I am Juline Sonara, captain of the Torchbearer and its 213 souls. May we meet again in ten years with news of new lands and fast friends. Start the engines. What once was only a modest spark on just a small piece of land, was now a raging inferno pulsing amongst a system of life and knowledge, stretching at the edges and chafing at its restraints, brimming with unused potential. And then, a tiny spark flitted out and into the system at will. Then, there were two, three, four, and the front gates opened. What was once a lone bonfire was soon joined by dozens of fires and hundreds of candles across the dark sea, hinting at the hearth of a young star that could be born in its midst, given time. And as it grew, a spark found himself astray in an unknown territory, facing an ember that was not of its make, making both aware of the lights in the dark that they had missed. Halson Kirsch was nervous. This is it, he thought. Official first contact. Something he'd been groomed for, for the year it had taken them to translate the Cyprian's lingua franca and learn their cultural norms, which were surprisingly close to what the humans held tight. As he walked towards his counterpart, he went through all of his lessons again. How to speak, posture, act, greeting. Wait, how did he greet? As the distance grew shorter and it was almost time to stop, his panicked lizard brain managed to make only one train of thought. Bird, weak, ape, strong. Conclusion, bow like a motherfucker. Which he did, only to look upon the hand of a Cyprian diplomat. Oh, you, uh, bow? She said, retracting her hand and returning the bow immediately. Yes, but we also shake hands. Did you also forget to make sure of that? He said, not trying to conceal his mirth. Apparently, she said, with mirth in her voice too. The hall was filled with laughter, both mammalian and avian signaling the beginning of a strong friendship between the two races. It is a rare sight to see two different lights mix with each other, to mingle and combine, to form something new, and to yell into the void, Come on! Here we are! And we stand united! We are invincible! It is rare, because as much as civilizations can glow with hope, they too can burn with hate filled and light. Alarm klaxons were blaring deafeningly into the bridge of the needle as space, and the two fleets around it stood in flames, all were trying their hardest to kill each other, sometimes both. The bridge was filled with the sounds of the wounded dying, and the screams of the Admiral trying to save a world. Admiral, Omega-3, target proper Foxtrot to India, and where is the battle group 13? Communications officer. ETA two minutes. They got hauled up by the binds. Uh, tell them they have one. Delta, Delta, retreat immediately. Tell the PDF to focus on the fighters. They are ripping us a new one. Seven new contacts in sector uniform. Five frigates and three destroyers. Those bastards just got Zulu Alpha. Dango November and Sierra Oscar damaged heavily. The refugee ships are wide open. To all carriers, flush everything you have. I don't give a crap what it is as long as it can fly and shoot. Take the new contacts out. Oh, we have a massacre on our hands. Ma'am, the new ship warped in. Designated Oscar Alpha. Planet Cracker. Battle Group 13, engage the PC before the... C it's charging. It's fecking charging. How? God 
damn it! Blue Wave cannot fall or they have direct access to the capital, to all units, overclock engines and reactors, full power to Oscar Alpha, kill it at all costs, block its path if you can. Taking heavy hits across the board. Wait, Sierra Alpha is engaging FTL. They are running. Sierra Alpha, what the feck are you doing? Captain Feathers unbound. I'm sorry, Admiral, but we won't make it in time by flying. I will have your traitorous skull for that, you feathery feck. There won't be enough for me or my crew for that, I'm afraid. Then I'll dirge be filled with pride. What are you... Overcharge reactor, engage warp for the Republic. And in one moment, the screen and a 3D map went wide, returning to color moments later, showing the PC in pieces, and both sides paralyzed as the action of one suicidal ship that warped into another and winning the one in a million chance of actually hitting it, instead of exploding just by itself. What are you standing there for? Make those feckers pay in blood for that! When the light dies, it dies forever. No amount of bargaining, begging, or effort can rekindle what has been lost. But no light ever vanishes without an impact. For one always reaps what one sows. And so, it was that selfless sacrifice was rewarded with a victory... Just one. But sometimes, that's all that is needed. So, what shall we do, Mr. President? You are aware that you are asking me to decide whether or not I should save the Holdrawn from almost guaranteed extinction, right? The same they tried to kill us not even 30 years ago. Mr. President, the question should not be if, but how do we help them? Because it is the right thing to do, Admiral. Partially, Martipus and the Graves and the xenophobic ancestors of those fishy facts and show them that we are better than them. Anyone against that? No? Okay. Then let's person some graves. Every light burns bright. Some more, some less. Some fill a galaxy, others fill only a nebula or just a system. For the only truth that all of them have is that even the brightest will die, forgotten by all. The school had ended early which is good, but all transportation was out of order, which sucked, because it meant that she had to trek uphill for three kilometers to get home. Grumbling all the way, as only an angry teenager can, she barely registered the shocked and sorrowful faces. The broadcast, or somber mood that permeated the city paralyzed it. But once she was home and had kicked her shoes in the corner, she heard her mother weeping in the living room. Mama, what's wrong? Why are you weeping? she asked. Her mother only pointed to the screen. On it were three words which made her heart skip a beat out of shock. Humanity officially extinct. And so it was that the last spark of humanity died, only mourned by an uncaring universe and the light of creation that permeated it, which they lit so many years ago. If you look for light, you can often find it. But if you look for the dark, that is all you'll ever see. Ira. End of story. 2012. Magic Ian. Written by Ice Cream and Wine. The human child gazed impassively at the ranting space elf lord as he stood in front of his ornate throne. How did you do this? He screamed. Now best scryers told us that the human homeworld had no magic. And they were correct, said the human. Prior to your invasion, humans had no magic at all. Where did you get this from then? shouted the lord. Where do you think we got it from? You tool, 
You magically enhanced invasion force brought it with them to our planet, said the child. When your portals opened to our world, we knew nothing of magic, the child continued. We had no idea that magic was even possible. When your elven troops strode out of the portals, most of science fiction geeks and science fantasy geeks had to go home and change their underwear. No, look, space elves. We'll call them spelfs. Nah, that doesn't ring. Spelfs, it is. Then you started ranting about inferior species and your world be ours. The reason that you were here became apparent. We tried to negotiate with you, but once you started slaughtering unarmed men, women and children, which was bad enough, and when you started to eat the dead children, you did something for us that had never happened before, the child said. For all of history, we would as much kill each other as make friends with each other. You gave us focus for our violence. Violence that pervades our very soul. If you believe in that sort of thing. In a remarkably short time, all humanity united and stood against you. Then we saw that you used magic, against which we had little defense. But your fighting prowess was nowhere close to ours. So we drew out our battles so that your magic was depleted. Once your magic waned, we cut you to ribbons. The common troops were as easy enough. But your magisters were a different story. The child continued. The fireballs and high winds conjured by your magisters caused us no end of problems, and we were hard-pressed to deal with them. And that's when your weakness became apparent. What you call a void metal reduces the usefulness of your magic. You call it void metal. We call it iron. And it started to interfere with your magic the second your troops emerged from your portals. Void metal? You have void metal on your world, whispered the Lord. Have it. The surface of our world is riddled with it. We use it for practically everything, said the child. Our buildings contain iron, as do our weapons and machines. Much like you are nothing without magic. We would be close to nothing without iron. How do you know about the void metal effects on our magic, queried the Lord. Oh, that's easy. Bert told us, replied the child. Bert? Who's Bert? Do you mean Bert and Nenelet Atu? said the Lord. Giza in the green armor. Yeah, that's him. It took him over a minute to pronounce his name, so we called him Bert, stated the child. He's one of my finest warriors, said the Lord. I cannot believe that he would betray his people like this. It's amazing what one will do to avoid being placed in a void metal cage, said the child. We have him in a copper cage. If he doesn't answer the questions, we lower a bigger iron cage over it. The poor bastard is falling over himself to answer questions we haven't asked him yet. One of my other two warriors, said the Lord. Blue armor seemed to top himself before we could get to him, said the child. He just sort of melted away into the air. All that was left of him was the armor. Red armor was kissed by a 155mm shell and sort of lost interest immediately, said the child. There was practically nothing left. As an aside, it seems that when your mages die, their portals remain active until shut down by somebody of equal rank, which is a bit difficult when there is only one of them left, and he is our bitch, said the child, which is how we got to your world. Portals work both ways, it seems. Enough, bellowed the lord, directing a fireball at the child, which dissipated before it reached the target. Temper, temper said the child. You tried that before, so you know that you cannot harm me, and neither can your troops, indicated the spelt soldiers cowering in the corner. How can this be? bellowed the Lord. I do not understand. 
Neither do we in the beginning, said the child. It seems that when one of yours dies, be they common soldiers or white mages or magisters, what magic they had seeks a new home. Normally, it would gravitate to the next magic user. It was then apparent that humans are capable of using magic, as the magic that was technically homeless sought out human hosts, as well due to there not being many of your troops left. I am the product of such a magic transfer, as I was very close to Blue Armor when he suicided. I was hiding in the cellar of my house after he killed my family. He laughed while he was doing it, the bastard. The magic sought me out because I was the closest living being. I don't understand how this all works, and I don't even know the extent of my powers. But I do know that I am impervious to damage, magic or mundane, said the child which is why it has fallen to me to kill you, as you are the fountainhead of magic that your people rely on. You! You cannot kill me! Only void metal can kill me, and the magic shield in place around my palace protects me from the effects of void metal, laughed the lord. Your shield prevents the passage of void metal. But our people, said the child, gesturing to the bodies of his former companions, as you can see my soldiers, even without iron-based weaponry, Killed ten of your warriors for each of mine lost. Who and what are you? Styled the Lord. My name is Ian, and I am a miner, said the child. I can see that you are a child, but I do not see how you can kill me, observed the Lord. That is because you only value magic, and not science, literature, and philosophy. Magic is but fleeting, and science is forever, said the child. Literature and philosophy, absolute nonsense. They have no practical use, sniggered the Lord. Now show me the science, scowled the Lord. I will show you my magic first, said the child, pointing at the soldier's body. Emerge from the Shadow Realm, he commanded. The Lord looked on in stark horror as the body slowly began to move. Cut off the heads, cut off the heads, screamed the bannocked Lord. His soldiers moved to obey and in a few seconds the dead were done, and the bodies were stilled. Not so good with magic, are you, Ian? gloated the Lord. Still getting used to it, to be honest, said Ian, offhandedly. Now it is time for you to die. This is going to be a bit of hit and miss, said Ian, raising his left hand with his glowing fingers into the air. The Lord sprang down from his throne and grasped the glowing hand and placed a protective magic shield around it. He lifted Ian off the floor and brought his face close to the child and gloated. Not so much of a hit, was it? Ian croaked. More of a miss. Miss. Misdirection. Ian screamed as he drove a six-inch iron spike through the Lord's finely decorated, colorful, and much more importantly, lightweight ceremonial armor. Gurgling, the Lord fell to his knees, then rolled onto his back. The spell's troops did more than possible imitation of marionettes who have had their strings cut. This is the appliance of science that you wanted to see, said Ian. However, the lesson learned will be lost on you when you die. The study of science tells us mostly everything. If we ask the right questions and understand what we are asking, that we can understand the answers, mostly, continued Ian. Even silly things like the fake magic glowing fingers that distracted you. Also... The application of literature from our most beloved authors. These are the things that make a man. Iron enough to make a nail. Lime enough to paint a wall. Water enough to drown a dog. Sulfur enough to stop the fleas. Potash enough to wash a shirt. Gold enough to buy a bean. Silver enough to coat a pin. 
Lead enough to ballast a bird. Phosphor enough to light the town. Poison enough to kill a cow. In your case, the first line should grab your attention, said the child. I said I was a minor, but you interpreted that to mean I was a child, which I am. But it also means to be prospect for metals, which I do, as I can magically extract metal from rocks, the ground, and more importantly in this case, the bodies of my companions. Science tells us that the human bodies contain small amounts of iron, and there was enough in my soldiers to extract enough iron to make a spike that is currently boiling your innards. I kidded you that I was trying to raise the dead, but I was extracting the iron from their bodies. That's why they accompanied me. They all suffered from illness and disease that would prove fatal in time. They volunteered to come and die so that I could use their bodies to take you down. The Lord writhed on the floor of the throne room, gurgling and bubbling in agony. Well, it's been nice talking to you, and it's been helpful to watch you squirm. But time marches on for us, mind you, not you, said the child, removing the iron spike from the Lord's chest and sticking it in the Lord's ear, and applying the Toby's boots to it with some firmer. End of story. 2013 Weapons Inspection Written by Going Over That Cliff Ambassador, Ambassador, yes, yes, I'm awake. I was just thinking of His Majesty, the King's Greatness. Of course you were, said the aide. So, what were you saying? Better be something noteworthy to disturb my relentless thoughts towards the King, said the old Brian, strut and proud. We are approaching Mars. The Terrans are waiting for our confirmation. Are you ready to disembark? Yes, yes, with haste, of course. Now go, go! Tell the captain to dock the ship. By the King. By the King. Left alone in his chamber, the grumpy old Brian looked out at the viewing port and seized the planet, so-called Mars. Apparently, it was named after an ancient god of war of the Terrans. How impudent of them to think a forsaken deity could rival the might and the graciousness of the king. He recalls how the planet was initially uninhabited, even for the death wilders called humans as it was barren, without a suitable atmosphere and without proper magnetic field very different from what he sees beneath him. Large oceans now ruled the surface and green lush forests swarmed the lands. Here and there you could still see the red dust and the red rocks that inspired the humans to name it Red Planet back in time. As he waits for the ship to dock in the orbital ring that adorns the celestial body, he wonders if the species is as primitive and as barbaric as many of the royal court make them out to be. Ambassador, this is John Nebulus, the governor of Mars and the ambassador appointed by the Terran government. The aide makes way as an old but robust-looking humanoid steps forward. The fur on his head is gray and white, his facial features withered by the unrelenting march of time. His stature diminished compared to the youth of his species. His gaze just as sharp as in his prime. Behind him follows a dignified light gray coat woven in golden details, so majestic that it almost seems waving in the non-existent air currents of the station. The numerous military decorations show that he has countless battles behind his back. Greetings, I am the humble being that speaks for the great king of the Bryons. My name is not relevant compared to his majesty's greatness. Refer to me just as ambassador, proudly stood, while puffing out his chest and straightening his back to seem taller, reaching an impressive meter and fifteen centimeters by human standards. Greetings to you, Ambassador. 
As stated by your adjutant, I've been chosen by the Terran Senate to lead the negotiations regarding our provisional acceptance of the Coalition of the First Arm. Your arrival has come earlier than we expected, and I fear that without the diplomats from Caltus and Ryuji, we cannot begin our talks. A bit annoyed, the Brian thinks of what to do. After all, they arrived two days earlier thanks to his insistence of leaving with great haste in order to deal with the unexpected events that are bound to happen in an uncivilized and wild sector, such as the one controlled by humans. He expected pirate attacks or lawless bands of mercenaries to hinder his glorious arrival. But surprisingly, everything went smoothly. Well, uh, since we are here to talk about great war affairs, how about we show you some of our military assets, just to put your mind and heart at ease, said the old human, smiling. A bit shaken by the sheer size, the predatory gaze, and the show of teeth from the human counterpart, he takes a moment to reply. Sure, why not? I hope you will give us a decent sighting to report to His Majesty. The small group heads for the shuttles that will lead them to the surface. During the brief ride, the Brian tries to extract a bit of information from their soon-to-be allies, also looking for something to make fun of all potential weakness. So tell me, Governor, what can you humans add by joining our formidable alliance? Well, you will see shortly. As of now, we are heading to base Marcia Vetrix, where the 12th Warlords Division is currently preparing for deployment. Look outside the window. You'll see it from here. Confused, the ambassador looks outside. Now could one see a planetary structure from up here? They just entered the atmosphere. All he could see was just a big city. I find it difficult to see your so-called base. Maybe I'll see it once we get closer. The old human chuckled. <laughs> well, you see, my friend, that is the base. Pointing at what was mistaken as a large city. By the king's might, yes, he could see it now. The city was actually a base. He spotted airfields here and there, and depots the size of towns, barracks, shooting ranges, and even vehicle training grounds. The base itself is actually a geometrical shape, encased by a sturdy and tall wall overlooked by countless defensive towers and few imposing gates. In the middle of all of this, a large and blocky structure resembling what a modern castle would look like stood mighty and proud, the command center. Marsha Victrix, in honor of ancient times, it means something like martial and victorious. Very appropriate to have such name on a planet our ancestors named after the god of war. As you can see, the base is all encompassed by a wall the shape of an eight-point star. Twenty meters high, ten deep, and wide, with compartmentalized and separated sections. Its surface area is around 1,500 kilometers squared. Well defended by nine independent and overlapping shield generators, each able to cover the entirety of the base. Of course, there are fixed weapon emplacements on the bastions and the towers, but we also have numerous hidden retractable platforms supplemented by ten mobile defense missile brigades spread around. The four airfields are capable of hosting up to 1,000 air and spacecraft of different sizes. Each and every system of underground depots and bunkers assures us we have enough ammunitions and consumables to conduct high-intensity operations for two years without resupply. The base has a permanent garrison of eight mechanized regiments, 
and four attached armored battalions. If needed, additional units will be stationed. The ambassador had a face expression equivalent to his species of a draw drop. Nebulous continued. Sadly, I must say that during our war games, we found out that the space cannot hold out for too long without external existence, especially allied warships. If the case arose where the Marsh of Vitrix was isolated and under assault, we estimate that with rationing and scavenging, it could only hold for a period of... Uh, 10 years. If hastily prepared, up to 25 years of preparations and facing the average opponent in the galaxy. We based our estimates on the Zalark. Average opponent, my ass, thought the ambassador. Those wild beasts are known for stopping at nothing short of a black hole, and they estimated ten years. No matter their apparent bravado, these humans must have exaggerated the claims. I refuse to believe this. Very amusing. Maybe you are indeed worthy of being his niece majesty's side. Just for a brief period. I shall judge once I see the units up close. The shuttle softly touched steel on the landing pad protruding from what seemed from the sky as a modern take on a castle, and that was the intention when it was built. Every surface that was not dedicated to sensors or weapons was covered by thick steel and composite plating of unknown materials. Walking through the corridors, the alien bastard could notice two things. Firstly, the absurd amount of security ranging from point defense turrets at every blast door to the weapons lockers on every single floor. Secondly, the discipline of these seemingly barbarous people seemed to have, for every human they went by, everyone stopped and saluted. Not him. Not me. They are saluting the old man that is accompanying the great myself. Despite his indignation at such a thing, he realized his guide must have served a remarkable military career before becoming governor of Mars. Finding some courage, he asked. Well, despite the sorry appearance you show right now, your subordinates seem to have respect for your presence. Tell me. Now, what have you done to gain such fame? He smiled and took off his hat. Beneath the white fur on his head stayed right in place, ordered and shiny, as if coated by a mysterious wax. You see this, he said, pointing to a little sphere lodged in front of his hat. Blue light, so light that it seemed white, so light that it was actually fluorescent. Yes, the little sphere was actually emanating a faint light. That's a neutron star medal. It's considered one of the highest honors in our society. I got it back in the days when I was only 142 years old. <laughs> I was still young and strong. More perplexed than anything, the small group continued. Eventually, they reached an open area where the soul's radiation heated the cold skin of the Bryans. Happily, they took a minute to breathe in the fresh air. Here we are. This is the designated area for the 12th Warlord Division. What's with the name? Oh, you see. Back when we were just exploring the stars, the ones who had the task to explore unknown were called astronauts and cosmonauts. We wanted to maintain a sort of tradition for the bravest and most daring men. Of course, this is just one of the formations we employ. See them as a sort of elite troops. We also have the Marines, the Army, the Space Force, the Landers, the Imperial Guards, and so on each with their own different units for different tasks and purposes. The human war hero stopped as he noticed the ambassador was shocked in awe of what was in front of him. Rows and rows of armored vehicles, artillery tanks, trucks, atmospheric support aircraft, helicopters slash hovercrafts, armored scout cars, war bicycles, and so on. 
My, the king, this must be your whole armada. This is outstanding. Oh, <laughs> no, you misunderstood. This is just the equipment of the 12th Division. We are currently reviewing it. Can you tell me what those are? Those must be being on the battlefield, he said, pointing at some vehicles in the distance, towering and menacing. Ah, yes. The self-propelled extreme terrain artillery and howitzers. See those right there? They are 10 inches variable length barrel. The barrel length can be manually adjusted directly in the field and integrated and complex mechanisms from the caliber length of the L60 to L15. Depending on the operational needs, it uh, can operate either as a long-range artillery or as a howitzer, as the name implies. They have four mechanical legs with variable foot area and have a maximum ground clearance of 5.5 meters, enabling them to move even in the harshest of terrains. If magnetized and with adequate preparations, they can scale vertical walls. They are not meant for frontline combat, but are very impressive at first sight. How many are assigned per unit? Uh, each Warnord division has 72, in addition to two self-propelled artillery battalions and one self-propelled rocket artillery battalion. Sometimes additional units are assigned as extra support companies. And what are those? Those are the drone carriers. Land vehicles can launch and control remotely up to 10 drones each. For reconnaissance, all suicide drone attacks, uh, each division has 124 of them. What about that? That's an adaptable battle tank. We change configuration with a couple mechanics in a few hours, depending on the needs. And that? Hours went by as the ambassador inquired about everything regarding those wonders of technology. The likes of which the royal army would not even dream of. Initially, he was skeptical, but in the end he was just craving knowledge and wanted to know more. Not for his king, or for the intelligence bureau, but for himself. For curiosity. This armament was nothing short of amazing. Tell me, how many such divisions can you field? Surely they cannot be that much. Well, uh, yes. We only have 53 Warnold divisions. And the marine divisions are slightly less combat capable, as they are around 25,000 strong. Well, Warnolds are usually 30,000 strong at full strength. If memory does not betray me, we should have around 250 marine divisions. Ah, uh, also around 500 army divisions, which are a bit inferior in terms of numbers and equipment to the first two. But the others, uh, I, I don't really remember. Sorry. We should have around 2,000 divisions made out of the volunteers, and we are able to. With the current equipment stockpiles, filled up to 25,000 divisions with the standard equipment. If we really need to, we can resort to somewhat outdated stuff that we have in the warehouses. Nebulous paused as he noticed the ambassador had stopped listening, still trying to make sense of what he heard. I will ask our king if we can become your vessels. An ominous shadow looming over them. Ah! Wait until you see the navy! End of story. 2014 Story Number 1 he Who Guides the Lost, written by Teller of Tall Tales. I expected dying to hurt. I watched my crumpled body mournfully, the gash in my body still leaking blood that stained my white fur pink. The Traxian responsible frozen halfway through a running step. It only hurt when the knife got my throat. Then it was like falling into a deep sleep.
I started to sob. Mom was probably waiting for me at home with dinner. A dinner that would grow cold with my body. A soft hand lightened on my shoulder, and I looked up with puffy eyes into a hood filled with darkness. A soft, sympathetic voice echoing from within. I am sorry, but it is your time. Do not be afraid to mourn those you leave behind. My voice cracked as I spoke. Are you death? The figure's hood dipped in a sudden nod. Yes, I am death. I couldn't hold back as I burst into tears yet again, clutching at the helm of the figure's robe as I did. I cursed the unfair world I lived in, cursed the Traxy responsible. But mostly, I cried. A pair of gentle arms wrapped around me as death knelt down and hugged me, my face pressing against a chest covered in a graphic t-shirt. Death's soft voice consoled me. There, there, let it out. Death is hard on the soul. But it's harder on the living. Have you led a good life, Samuel? I nodded, eyes puffy with the dry tears as I pushed away from the cloaked figure, wiping my nose as I came to grips with my new reality. I try to, but I always seem to make things worse. Death nodded slowly, sitting next to me. The hem of the cloak lifted, revealing a pair of scuffed white sneakers. Death offered me a strange black cigarette that was already lit. I accepted it graciously. Smoking it seemed to help lift my fear and grief of death. Death himself didn't smoke one. Instead he spoke. I remember my death well. My planet was ravaged by a plague. By the time you showed symptoms, it was already too late. But I didn't die to the plague. No. I was brought down by the hand of my fellow man, much like yourself. Death paused as if in memory. Me, a doctor, and an engineer were holed up in my parents' old grocery store. A gang of cannibals had surrounded us, only held off by a small amount of arms and ammunition. I remember a dream of a cottage on a grassy hillside with the doctor and the engineer living happily inside. No cannibals, no disease, just happiness. Death's hand had reflexively covered a part of their chest under the cloak. Then, with a sigh and a fluid motion, Death lowered his hood. A young human boy, no older than myself at sixteen, gazed at my body with me, a melancholic look on his face. I'd been gutshot. By the time I had the tree, I was already pretty much dead. But for a few minutes, I had clarity. I knew my life was worthless if I just laid there. Tears came to Death's eyes to my immediate surprise. So I told them to take the sewers and go, leave me behind to cover their retreat. A smile broke through the tears. I killed every last one of those bastards that tried to eat us. I died in the process, as you can no doubt see. Standing, death offered me a hand, a sympathetic, sad smile gracing his lips. We've got a long journey ahead of us. We better get started. I took death's hand and stood, letting him lead me from the alleyway and into the sun-soaked street. I relished the feeling of the sun on my fur one last time as we stepped into the emeterium. The only indicator that we were still moving was a simple cobblestone path stretching off into the darkness and disappearing. A question burned in my mouth as I finally gathered the courage to ask. If you're walking this path with me, then who walked it with you? Death's face dropped slightly, his voice coming out as a barely a whisper. I walked this path alone. 
playing the cobbles as I went. It took me a very long time to find where it ended, but when I reached that burning staircase at the end, Beth gestured off into the darkness. I couldn't bring myself to walk up it. I turned around and walked all the way back where I met the soul of a little boy, the age of my brother before he passed. Death wiped his eyes. I couldn't make him walk this long, winding path on his own. So I walked with him, and when he walked up the staircase, I turned back yet again. Ever since, I have led lost souls to the stairs, helped them pass on before turning back for another. As we rounded the bend, I was almost blinded by the brilliant, bright burning staircase that reached off into the dark sky. Death smiled and gestured me forward. Heart racing, I placed a foot on the first step. I looked back as Death turned to walk back. He stopped when I called out. What happens when I reach the top? Death didn't respond for a moment. Then, turning around, he smiled gently at me. I don't know. I've never walked up them. Then, with the swish of his cloak, Death had gone. Looking up to the point where the ladder cut off, I gulped. Then I started climbing. With each step, I felt lighter and lighter until I started to float no longer needing the stairs. I proceeded to float upwards at an ever-increasing pace, blinding white lights surrounding me as I rocketed upwards. Then I hit something that shattered like glass beneath my momentum. And suddenly, my throat hurt, like really hurt. I opened my eyes looking at the ceiling of the hospital room. Slowly, I sat up, and my mother threw arms around me, sobbing into my shoulder. Mom, I thought I'd died. My voice was croaky and hoarse. She shushed me, quietly but happily sobbing. You were, but you came back. Don't ever scare me like that again. My eyes slowly fell on the corner of the room. A young teenage human in a cloak smiled at me, holding a freshly turned hourglass. I blinked, and he was gone. End of story. Story number two. Why no gods claim humanity? Written by Mercury the Dina. Thank you for your haste in coming to this meeting, Cardinal. Now sit down and listen closely. And before you ask, no, you cannot leave. The doors are locked and the guards are under strict instructions to kill anyone who leaves without my approval. No, you're not being demoted, killed or banished. You are here because you were judged to be a man of strong enough character and faith to cope with the information which you will be given while also being intelligent and rational enough to accept it and its implications. This meeting is centered around one question. Why do no gods claim humanity? It is a common question asked by many, even those ranked high among the church, yet one which, for most, lacks satisfactory answers. Humans are a simple race. They cling to the borders of the mountains and wildlands, spreading themselves amongst the most inhospitable lands of terror, using their adaptability and tenacity to wring sustenance from the harshest conditions. They lack the magical talent of the more civilized folk, such as the orcs and elves. Yet few mages could possibly stand against a human warrior during a last stand. Their willpower is, itself, a rare form of natural magic that few but the strongest willed could hope to replicate granting them a chance to stand against certain death and win much more often than simple chance would have. This phenomenon 
also applies to their religion. Yes, they do worship the gods, probably more than any other race. Yes, I know the narrative spewed by the church, proclaiming that humans are faithless beings and that this is the reason behind no god claiming them. Oh, and that they are sent straight to the depths of the hells. I should. I am the one who first shared such a narrative. You see, Cardinal, what fuels the gods and their servants? What separates a warrior who can barely imbue the tip of his blade with a holy energy from a paladin who is capable of smiting an entire army? Faith. Faith that your god will smite them. Faith that you will do the righteous thing. Faith that your god is real and has your interests in mind. The same faith that fuels humans. Why do no gods claim humanity? Because all of them, at one point, did. And they regretted it. Imagine giving a god a being fueled by devotion and faith of its followers, access to a power of a collective will of humanity. Now, imagine giving a human warrior a being capable of simply forcing himself to stay alive through sheer will. The ability to call forth divine judgment. Finally, imagine giving all the gods and warriors of humanity that same power. No, it did not go well. Three decades, the entire known world is bathed in blood and fire for three whole decades, as human paladins and priests shattered the land with their blind fervor. Entire mountain ranges, rivers, and at least one ocean were created, but not by the gods but by the aftermath of humans fighting in the name of their deities. This period of cataclysmic destruction was, surprisingly, fine. Yes, for our senses of such power would be unheard of, but it did not matter because if everyone is powerful, no one is. So why were humans abandoned if they gave the gods such absolute power? Simple. The gods did not know what to do with the dead humans. Yes, the gods already had their heavens, a few already had multiple. It is just that the humans did not enjoy them for long. Paladins of Nor, for example, who were promised eternal battles by their god, grew bored of fighting the same battles day and night, and thus decided to spice things up by duelling not each other, but Nor's angels. And then his archangels. And then him. Until eventually they killed their own god out of boredom and decided to invade other planes. This is not a singular occurrence. It was not even an uncommon event during that time. In total, three gods have been injured to the point of hibernation during the last thousand years, with none being actually killed. More than 17 gods died during those 30 years. Eventually, humans were considered to be an existential threat to the divine, infernal and material blades. Divine treaties were thus signed by all higher beings, forbidding any from claiming humanity. After all, if everyone is weak, then no one is. That is why no gods claim the humans. Cardinal, I have not told you to stand up. I have yet to tell you the real reason that you are here. There is another much more disturbing question that you must be asking yourself at this moment. If humans are claimed by none and their skirt go to heaven or hell, where do their souls go? Well, we are standing upon them, Cardinal. 
Millions, perhaps billions of souls are buried deep beneath our feet, trapped by change forged by gods now long gone, blissfully dormant. And this is why you are here, Cardinal. The cells grow fuller by the day, the chains becoming more strained as the, the aimless will and fervor of countless push them a bit more every second. You will be taught how to calm their slumber and oil these chains so as to keep the horde contained. And if you fail, I fear that the sleeping titan that is humankind will not be so merciful to the remaining gods. Oh! And congratulations on your promotion. End of story. 2015. A Slice of Earth. Written by Tabaxi499. You are human, I asked with shock, looking at the painter I hired. He came highly recommended by the Information Guild. Near-perfect reviews detailing his creativity and position, but failing to mention his race. A Linrin, Loxa, or Lixlix would have been expected. Oh, even a Mu or a Chaharlahara would have made some sense. But the greatest fighters in the galaxy has ever seen. They storm citadels and fight off monsters, not paint buildings. Um, the human said with exasperation. I understand the stereotype my species carry, but they are greatly exaggerated. A small percentage of humans do serve as mercenaries, imperial guards, and yes, even the shepherd, but most of us are just like you, Leo the painter, said, almost like he was reading it from his flashcard. I'd never even considered humans as anything but warriors. Some cruel, some heroic, but always warriors, never artists. So you are a retired fighter or? I asked, leaning in. No, I have never picked up a sword or shot a blaster. I don't wear a shield and I fly a beat-up stargazer with no weapon mods. My parents were artists, and while I respect the bravery of some of my people, I have never and will never fight, he said, clearly annoyed. So let's forget about me killing your rivals, avenging your people, or smuggling goods. I am a painter. What do you want me to paint? He said, taking a deep breath. That must be rough, to have everyone assume that you're something you're not. Well, uh, this whole place, really, I said, gesturing to the peeling paint inside my restaurant. It hasn't had a makeover since my parents ran this place. So, I was thinking that you could put some life back into it. I was kind of hoping for something stylized and original. Some kind of theme that would get people in the door. Any ideas? Hmm, about human art. Everyone knows all about us now, and I haven't really seen anywhere else doing it. Plus, you can say a human actually painted it. Hang a picture of me doing it up on the wall. Might get people curious about what kind of culture humans had back on Earth. Dio said, looking around. That's a great idea. You can make new versions of paintings you remember from before and use some old human styles. Go nuts. Just make sure that all the old stuff is covered up. I said, beaming. This is a really good idea. Human culture has been all the rave since the few surviving ones were rescued from Earth. Oh, maybe I could even serve some human food here. Or at least convince people we served human food. Could I ask you some questions about humans while you work? I asked as Leo began scraping old, old paint off the walls. Be my guest, Leo said with a shrug. Well, first of all, if human culture isn't about war and bravery, what is it about? Well, those things do play a role in our culture. I think it has more to do with personal relationships. Oh, that's a lot like my people, I said with a little tail wag. Yeah, the Lindren and humans actually get along pretty well normally. Lots of humans end up living on Lindren worlds if they don't want to fight. 
I remember my parents mentioning something about that. Places like the Imperial Homeworld can be a bit much for a human since it's a lot of us lived in more isolated places near the end, he said, a bit downtrodden. What was Earth like in the end? I asked, walking over to him. As bad as you've heard, humans panicked when they heard the world was ending and kind of brought it on themselves. I was young at the time and a lot luckier since both my parents were still with me. The three of us stayed in the woods so we didn't see any of the really bad stuff, and we all left together in the end. People were good before that. We built things, we got scared or angry or something, and we ruined it all, Leo said, continuing to scrape. I didn't even know humans could feel fear, I said, surprised. No, you're kidding. You are total scaredy scales. It would take me longer to list off half the things we get afraid of than to paint this place, he said with a chuckle. Are you afraid of anything? I asked, tail wagging. No, of course. The Lexrex, for starters. No way. The Lexrex are harmless. What are they going to do? Hop on you? I asked, making a jumping motion. Quit it. Those things look a lot like grasshoppers from Earth, and those always got me worried. Were grasshoppers dangerous? No, not at all. Then why were you so afraid of them, silly? I laughed as my tail wagging. I told you that we humans are scared as scales, he said with a smile. Tell me something else about humans, I asked, tail wagging hard. Well, we had a lot more pets than any alien I've ever seen. Oh, that's right. You domesticated animals in your home world. What did you use them for? In the modern day, not much. We just kind of liked having little furry friends around to keep us company. Guess that's why we like the Linrin so much, Leo said with a smile. Linrin are not human pets, I said lightly, punching Leo. I will have you know that we are highly intelligent species. Is that so? Then you wouldn't mind telling me more about the Linrin culture. Leo said, finishing off the scraping. Mask away, I said, tail still wagging. What's the deal calling all your priests parents? Leo asked as he started mixing paints. Yeah, the protected church is kind of weird. They are really nice, but they act like we're all family, and that the leaders are all parents. I know they don't mean it exactly like this, but it always made me feel like I was a kid, I said, watching him focus on the paints. He had brought a few basic colors, along with a few dyes to blend in. He was making a light blue. That seemed relaxing. Honestly, some earth religions did the same thing, but we called the priests fathers. Leo said, getting onto a ladder to start with the seeding. Ah, that's the worst. Why start with the seeding? Why not just go for something simple and walk to get yourself warmed up? I'm going to start with something I know, something famous, that most humans will probably recognize. Leo said as he began to spread a mix of his mixed blues and pure white paint. The seeding was round, so it would be pretty hard to paint. Was the thing you're making originally on a curved surface, or are you going to have to adjust? I asked a little nervously. Leo was good, but I was worried he might be taking on something too tricky. I was expecting him to keep the seeding monocolored, like it had been. It was actually on a seeding, just a much bigger one, so I'm just going to do a part of it here, he said, focusing on more on his burgeoning art. Humans painted their seedings, not most of them, but this huge building, a holy building, had its whole seeding painted. My parents took me to see it when I was a kid. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. The building was 130 feet long by 40 feet wide, and every inch of that seeding was painted incredibly, Leo said with reverence. How many people did it take to do that? Just one human. I was shocked one human painted something that big alone, and it turned out so wonderfully. Why are humans so amazing? You paint seedings and liberate planets, then still have time to chat with little old me. Some of us are amazing. Some of us are monsters, but most of us just are. 
A lot of us, even some of the good ones, live in the shadows of the great ones and terrible ones. Leo said, losing himself in the yard. What kind of human are you? I asked honestly. Leo wasn't a fighter, but it was aunt who began to take shape. I did wonder if there was more to him than the average painter. I don't know. Maybe you can tell me after I finished, he said, glancing down with a smile. With that, I left him be. For the next few hours, I was trying to think about how to capitalize on this new human theme, but my conversation with Leo wouldn't get out of my head. There was something more to him. I thought as I crumpled up an idea of human-themed meals and threw it in the trash. I checked the time and realized how late it was getting, then left my office and was surprised to see Leo still there painting. Don't look yet, he asked pleadingly. I covered my eyes and said, I didn't pay you. Why can't I see the work in progress? I want it to be a surprise. Let me lock up tonight. I think I can finish it by Monday. Leo, you don't have to work over the weekend. I have the place closed for the next two weeks, so you have plenty of time to do a good job. But not something great, Leo said, looking at me with an intensity that could only come from a human. Okay, I'll see you Monday, I said with curiosity. Let's see what this human can do. Over the weekend, I almost returned to my little restaurant nearly every hour. At one point, I had got in my ship and started the engine, only to change my mind. I was so curious what Leo was making, but I wanted to give him time to finish. When I did arrive on Monday, the smell of paint was heavy in the air. Leo's ship wasn't there, but the place was locked up. I unlocked the door and stepped inside, not knowing what to expect. When I looked up to see Leo's work, I wept. On my ceiling was a human on the ground reaching for a divine figure upheld by flying humans. The detail was extraordinary. Every time I thought I'd seen it all, there was something more to see. On the floor by the ladder was a tablet with the original painting, which he must have used as a reference. It was identical besides the cracks that had been formed over time. I called Leo right away too. Well, I don't even know why, really. I just needed to speak to a person who had transformed my restaurant. I called him, and he answered in a daze. Hello, who is this? This is Kanzo. Listen, I just saw the ceiling. It's wonderful. I can't believe that you were able to make something like this. I'm going to pay you extra, and free food for life, I said, my tail feeling like it was going to fall off. I'm not finished yet. What do you mean? It looks amazing. I hope so. But I still have to do the walls. Oh, I can just put a red coat on. You already scraped off the old stuff, so we can call it good. I don't want to call it good. If you'd let me, I'd like to paint your walls too. Show off some more human art. I was stunned. Will you let me? Of course, I said ecstatically. For the next two weeks, Leo worked on my restaurant. Each bit of the wall a different style from a different time or place. We talked while he worked, and we talked, and I learned a lot about humans and Leo. He told me about human food, which I started trying to recreate to his delight. We talked about human movies that we could show at the restaurant for our new movie night. This had always been a family-friendly restaurant, but Leo talked me into showing PG-13 and R-rated movies later in the evening when all the kids had gone to bed. Those were the human equivalent of developing and develop-only movies. There were even some movies that existed solely to scare the viewer, called horror, which Leo really liked. Once a month, we'd play a few back-to-backs. His parents had managed to hold onto our hard drive with thousands of movies and other human stuff where they left, and Leo thinks that we can find more amongst other humans. On the last day, Leo was scheduled to work for me. There was almost nothing left to do, just a few more dishes to clean up, but I had something else in mind. 
Leo, you've completely changed this place with me, I said, holding his hands and wagging my tail. Don't mention it, Leo said with a smile. He had a lovely smile. I've been thinking, and I've decided that I couldn't have made this change without you, and I can't keep up without you. You're offering me a job, Leo said puzzled. Yes, as a manager here. You know so much about humans, and I can see how passionate you are about bringing back human culture. So maybe we could do it together, I said, tail wagging. Yeah, let's do it, Leo said with a smile. So he did. The hard drive Leo's parents gave us had a few human cookbooks from around the world, so we started trying to find new ingredients to replace the ones on Earth. The meats and veggies were relatively easy, but the spices and herbs were a lot more challenging. It took us six months till we could find a replacement for ginger, but we did. We decided it would be best to change the name, something to fit the new theme. We went with a slice of earth, and according to Leo, it was. Within a year, word had gotten out across the universe that this was the first restaurant to serve authentic human dishes, and the humans came running. Everyone from simple mechanics to the most deadly mercenaries in the Empire came to give our food a try. In fact, half the Imperial Guard became regulars. Two of them cried after eating our curry. One because it reminded him of his mother's cooking, and the other because it was too spicy. Whenever some important human would come, Leo or I would take our pictures with them. The important humans loved it, and so did everyone else. Leo told me it was kind of a human tradition, but it wasn't just humans that came. It seemed like creatures came from every corner of the known universe, hoping to see a celebrity or just wanting to try human food. The movie nights were popular with everyone. It took watching the movies to fully understand humans. They were all warriors in a way, but not all of them fought with sword. Some fought with their minds, competing to see who could crack the Enigma Code, while others fought with their voices to see who would be the next American Idol. But most fought with their words, bargaining, debating, and mocking. A human loved nothing more than to be heard, especially the quiet ones. After a year and a half of working together, Leo and I were closing down after movie night. We played Shrek for our kids' movie, and people loved it so much we played the next two for the adult movies. Two smugglers loved it so much they started crying. Did you see the couple crying over Shrek? Leo asked me as we were putting the last dishes away. Lindren and the Hattias. I didn't think they were a couple, I said as I finished sweeping the floors. Yeah, it's kind of weird that Lindren would date a totally different species, Leo said, walking over to me. It's not so weird. It's actually pretty common for Lindren to date other races, I said, hoping I knew where this was going. Yeah, but the Astias is so much bigger. There's not really a problem. It just means that they give better hugs, I said, tail picking up speed. But they don't have any fur. Leo said, stepping right in front of me. Oh, that's fine. Fur can get so messy. I said, my tail wagging furiously. But they... I stopped Leo before he could finish, jumping onto him and giving him a loving kiss. But I don't care about those things. You're sweet, driven, and I like you, Leo. I said, clinging to him. He hugged me back. For those who don't know, human hugs are legendary. There is nothing in the universe so warm, calming, all safe as a human wrapping their strong arms around you, even by human standards. This hug was amazing. End of story. I'd quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Lord Azrakal, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's sister, Ambrose Cattell, and Quantum Wednesday. 
Thank you very much.